Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Recording. Just talking to Chris Bennett today and uh, this evening and decided to do a bit from his Libra 420 because it was interesting what we were touching on with uh, the development of entheogenic substances in... Uh, Martinism, Rosicrucianism, and many other magical traditions. He has, of course, um, well, not of course, Chris Bennett has a conference coming up on Aleister Crowley with Lon Milo Duquette and very other interesting people, and that will be on Zoom due to COVID, of course. No retreat and no conference in Vancouver, which would have been the plan normally. But what we're going to look at is from his book, Libra 420, which you must have if you don't have it. Um, that might be my fault. Um, as some of you know, I had most things I own stolen, and I'm working on that. I'm working on that now that I'm back in Canada. We'll see what we'll see what the authorities have to say about property ownership. But let's not dwell on that. It's um, it's important to move on. Letting go in life, the practice of kenosis, is something which. I've always been most interested in apophatic mysticism, a spirituality of letting go, because this life is temporary. Everything we do in this world is so temporary that you got to let it go. you got to let it go. But now let's move on. Let's talk about 19th century Masonic and Rosicrucian Hashishin, beginning with Islamic influences. Even before the publication of von Hammer Pugstall's anti-Masonic work, Mysterium Baphometus Revelatum, 1818, some Masons themselves were trying, tying in the history of the order with that of the Templars. And this, of course, led to the Hashishins, causing some branches and offshoots of Masonry to take on a particularly Islamic flavor. As Sir Richard Burton, 1821-1890, to has been popularly noted as stating, Sufism is the Eastern parent of Freemasonry. <laughs> that's, that's remarkable. That's Burton, 1856. This view of Masonic origins was also incorporated into Freemason Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King. Kipling wrote my, one of my favorite poems, If. If you don't know that one, check out the poem If. 
My mom used to say that to me all the time as a kid. Interestingly, both of these figures also used cannabis and a variety of other drugs. Sir Richard Burton had a deep knowledge of both the occult and drugs. In A Plain and Literal Translation of the Arabian Nights Entertainments, he expressed his deep knowledge of cannabis, even identifying Rabelais' references and suggesting an interesting etymological connection to Nepenthe. Quote, the Arab, Banj, and Hindu, Bang, which I use as most familiar, both derive from the old Coptic Nibanj, meaning a preparation of hemp, cannabis sativa soy indica. And here it is easy to recognize the Homeric Nepenthe. Al-Kazwini explains the term by garden hemp, kenab bostani, or shadanaj. My Arabic's not existent. <laughs> Um, on the other hand, not a few apply the word to the henbane, Hyoschiamus niger, so much is used in medieval Europe. The camus evidently means henbane, distinguishing it from hashish al-harafish, rascal's grass, i.e. the herb pantagruelian. The alfaz adwia, French translation, explains tabanuj by endormir calcu un uh, le faisant avale de la jusquem, asleep someone making him swallow henbane. In modern parlance, tabanouge is our anesthetic administered before an operation, a deadener of pain like myrrh and a number of other drugs. Oh, I didn't know myrrh deadened pain. That's very cool. For this purpose, henbane is always used, at least I never heard of henbane, and various preparations of the drug sold at an especial bazaar in Cairo. See the powder of marvelous virtue in Boccaccio 3.8 and 4.10. Of these intoxicants, properly so termed, I shall have something to say in a future page. The use of bang doubtless dates from the dawn of civilization whose earliest social pleasures would be inebriants. Herodotus shows the Scythians burning the seeds, leaves, and capsules in worship and becoming drunken with the fumes, as do the South African Bushmen of the present day. This would be the earliest form of smoking. It is still doubtful whether the pipe was used or not. Galen also mentions intoxication by hemp. Amongst Muslims, the Persians adopted the drink as an ecstatic, and about our 13th century Egypt, which began... The practice introduced a number of preparations to be noticed in the course of the nights. Burton, 1885. Chris Bennett goes on to say, Elsewhere, Burton noted of hashish's use in the East, quote, by magicians to deify themselves and receive the homage of the genie and nature spirits. Biographer Thomas Wright wrote how Burton smoked the forbidden weed, hashish, and grew confidential with his friend of 30 years, Haji Wali, who had inspired Burton to adopt Arabic dress so he would travel more freely in the East, eventually enabling his famous trip to Mecca. Burton belonged to lodges in both England and India. Kipling was a registered Freemason for four years in England and acted as a secretary of the lodge in 1887. Besides the clear Masonic themes in A Man Who Would Be King, 
1926, Kipling released debits and credits, which included four Masonically inspired stories. I think a lot of people don't realize how, how Masonic and mystical Kipling was. In Kipling Sahib, India and the Making of Rudyard Kipling, Charles Allen describes a late 19th century account where in India, Kipling sought relief from a bout of dysentery by smoking opium and ingesting chlorodyne, a medicine that in some patents was a tincture mixture of opium, cannabis, and chloroform. There is convincing, quote, there is convincing evidence that this double dose hit him with the force of a revelation. In modern parlance, it blew his mind, opening the doors of his unconscious hitherto kept tight shut and causing him to lose some of his fearfulness. Allen, 2015. Allen suggests that this even brought a, quote, new dimension to his thinking, freeing him to speak more directly from within himself. Allen, 2015. As Kipling expressed in a letter to a relative of this experience, here am I with my head still ringing like a bell from the fumes of that infernal opium, plotting and planning and crowing on my own dunghill as though I were one of the immortals. Awesome. To continue. Gerard de Nerval and his hashish-infused tales of the Druze and Hiram Abif. As most readers who have made it this far are likely aware, an important figure in the rituals of Freemasonry is a character named Haram Abif, said to be the architect and builder of Solomon's temple. Also known as the widow's son, Hiram Abif is the central character of an allegory presented to all candidates during the third degree in Freemasonry. In the mythology of the story, Abif is murdered by three ruffians who want him to reveal the secret signs and passwords of the higher degrees of Freemasonry, which were used in receiving payment for work on the temple. Some of the central initiations of Masonry are death and rebirth ceremonies based on this particular story. Interestingly, the first public retelling of this mythos had the tale tied up with the occult use of hashish. The French poet Gerard de Nerval, 1808-1855, included what has been suggested as the first published account of the Masonic story of Hiram Abif. In his autobiographical account of his travels, Voyage en Orient, 1851, which is similar to Potocki's work in the way that it contains stories within stories along with esoteric secrets. It is within this curious entanglement of tales where we find de Nerval's accounts of hashish, Hiram Abif, and biblical secrets. As the authors of The Temple and the Lodge noted of this, quote, Nerval not only recited the basic narrative, he also divulged for the first time, to our knowledge, a skein of eerie mystical traditions associated with Freemasonry and Hiram's background and pedigree. What is particularly curious is that Nerval makes no mention of Freemasonry whatsoever, pretending that his narrative is a species of regional folktale never known in the West before. He claims to have heard it orally recited by a Persian raconteur in a Constantinople coffee house. It's from Bygent and Lee, who most of you might know from their famous books, 1988. Nerval, I don't know if it's Nerval or Nerval, but we shall, well, I'll do both. Nerval was likely introduced to a lot of Masonic ideas through his mentor, Charles Nodier. Nodier's father was a close friend of Jacques Cazot, and so, from an early age, he had become familiar with a variety of esoteric views and aspects of Martinist and Masonic philosophy. 
for some folks who might not know, Martinism is another uh, mystical tradition, and popular orders of Martinists uh, are quite prevalent today. Um, so that's another thing. It, it, they're parallel to sort of Masonic and Golden Dawn orders and other such groups. Some people argue they don't uh, aren't co uh, harmonious to do together, but I know lots of uh, Golden Dawn adepts who are also top-ranking Martinists, and a lot of people seem to like to do both, So, and then the Masonry as well. So just for some of you who might be new to this stuff, that that's all out there. Quote, Charles Nodier and his father were both Masons and may have belonged to the Royal Order of Scotland. Emery's 2007. Nodier was a mason, and many of his novels feature initiatory plots. Montague and Rachenach. I can't say that. Rachenach, 2012. Both Nodier and Nerval shared a deep interest in Faust, with Nerval writing his acclaimed translation when he was only 18 years old, and Nodier writing his adaptation of the story for the stage. Like Cazotte, Nodier was known to use opium for visionary purposes. The pioneer of drug transcendence was the French novelist Charles Nodier in the 1790s. Nodier was a romantic for whom life was a voyage of introspective self-discovery, and he convinced himself that opium gave him revelations that he could not obtain when sober. Davenport Hines, 2003. Quote, opium, he believed, provided a gate to another world, the realm of dreams and nightmares. Melton, 2010. As Nodier wrote in an 1831 correspondence with a friend, the decoctions of various plants loaded with spirits are highly recommended. Opium does wonders. The ether is sovereign, and I would not know any other specific for my use. Opium taken at high doses accelerates life. Nodier, 1844. Nodier in La Fée aux Miettes, 1832, narrates the adventures of an inspired devotee of the Mandrake and has been noted for discoursing on the rites of Freemasonry. Mandrake, of course, is the, the wizard's herb and often used, and even as Thomas Hatzis recently informed me, uh, used twice in the in the Bible, in biblical texts, for uh, entheogenic and magical practice. In reference to this use of drugs for inspiration in the works of Nodier, in Un Carnival de Paris, a carnival of Paris, Joseph Marie refers to a sect of sleepers, of which Charles Nodier was for a long time one of the venerated pontiffs. That's Mary, 1856. Marie noted their use of opium, which was then a pleasure reserved for a few privileged sensualities, to lead their souls even to the heights of the celestial mountains and to the lands of ancient fairies, some of them progressive and audacious, invoked the help and efficacy of a mysterious substance still at that time, the hashish of which the jaded youth now intoxicate themselves, to plunge into a ravishing and ecstatic drunkenness. She is the orgies of the real world. Marie, 1856. Nodier's co-authored Histoire pittoresque de l'Angleterre et de la ses possessions dans les Indes, picturesque history of England and its possessions in the Indies, made reference to the assassins who were wont to get drunk with the fermented juice of a kind of hemp-like plant and named hashish. See the fables of the old man of the mountain and those of the eastern Tibet, Nodier et al., 
1835. The myth behind this account would come to be very influential on Neuval and other young writers who were known to frequent Nodier's company, like Victor Hugo, Honor de Balzac, Alexandre Dumas, and Théophile Gautier, as we shall see. How crazy is it that, like, I mean, when we studied this stuff in school or when you hear about this stuff in college and university, they never mention even a shred of drug use at all, ever. It, it really is. I find it just absolutely astounding how we have redacted. <laughs> it's like the education that we've gotten, uh, you know, post uh post-industrial education where we've basically been trained to be good uh, good cogs in the machinery and the factories of, since the industrial revolution it's like it's like what those government documents where you can maybe read only part of the title and then ever like one word out of every hundred that is what our history has been given to us as in the 20th and 19th century. So before that, you know, people just read everything and, and read everything they could access at the universities. Like, you know, in Nostradamus' day, you read all the books. If you had could get the book, you read the book. But we just have been taught, like, this complete fabrication of what world history has actually been like, and especially regarding, um, you know, medicine, uh, the history of medicine, plants, nature, naturalism. Nerval's own depth of occult knowledge is revealed in a number of works. In his Aurelia, he mentions having read the Kabbalah, Swedenborg, and the Egyptian Hermetic books. His interest in occultism also inspired him to lo a longer research work on 18th century initiates of secret societies, such as Jacques Cousseau and Cagliostro. When one reads Nerval's writings, it becomes clear that the French poet regarded hashish as instrumental in the great work, and an important aspect of occult history, and even Masonic lore. In her excellent work, The Orphic Vision, the professor, professor of French literature, Gwendolyn Bayes, makes clear the profound influence that hashish had on Nerval and other French poets, describing how they made free use of hashish to penetrate the unknown. Bayes, 1964. As the authors of the Book of Grass noted a half-century ago in a dedication to his close friend and fellow hashish enthusiast Alexandre Dumas, he wrote Three Musketeers, of course, Nerval uses the word supernaturalist to describe the state we moderns call high. That's hilarious. Nerval, so what we refer to as getting high, it seems Nerval would call supernaturalist. <laughs> oh, I know there's one listener out there who's laughing along with me. <laughs> I suspect the reference to Germans refers to certain Rosicrucians and occultists of that area in the 18th century. Quote, and since you have had the prudence to cite one of the sonnets composed in the state of daydreaming the Germans call supernaturalist, you must hear them all. You will find them at the end of the volume. They are hardly more obscure than the metaphysics of Hegel or the memorabilia of Swedenborg and would lose charm by being explained if such things were possible. That's a really interesting idea, actually, that the, 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 the hemp, the hashish, comes from nature and the cons consuming of it takes you higher than nature to a super nature. That's an interesting idea. I can, I can sort of, I can dig. There are actually two occult tales related to masonry that Nerval 
reveals in his journey to the Orient, and the role of hashish in these stories is very intriguing. In relation to the occult history of the herb, we have been alluding to in this volume, particularly in regard to Freemasonry. Quote, it is unclear what level of Freemasonry Nirval achieved, although it is clear he was well-versed in Masonic lore. His actual status in the craft is vague. Lachman, 2003. The first of these stories, Nirval claims, was told to him by an imprisoned Druze sheik named Esherazi. As Nirval explained, the Druze have been compared to the Pythagoreans, the Essenes, and the Gnostics, while some scholars claim that the Knights Templar exploited many of your ideas, and that the Rosicrucians and Freemasons have done the same today. Nirval, 1851-1972. That's a bibliographic reference for those of you following along. It has also been noted that the beliefs of the Druzes makes them in many ways the closest of the breakaway sects of Ismailism, Ismailism to the Assassins, Berman, 1987. The second of these tales is the aforementioned account from Nirval of the Masonic Hiramabith story, here under the name of Adoniram. And now, a word from our sponsors. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. And a combination of the Hebrew Adon and Hiram, signifying the master who is exalted and is based around the building of Solomon's temple. Let's not forget that the Hebrew Adon, Adonai, and Adonis in Greek both come from the Ugaritic Yadun, so that, that means Lord. Um, so Adon, anytime you use that word, or the, the real root, if it makes sense, Adon, Adonirum, uh, is a lordly word no matter how you place it in, in Hebrew or Greek context, uh, it, it goes back to the Ugaritic. The first tale, where am I? <laughs> oh, I'm not even, I, I'm not even hashishined up myself, but I've lost my place. Here, I'm signifying the master who is exalted and is based around the building of Solomon's temple. The first tale, that of Caliph Hakim, is set in 1000 AD. Nerval claims the principal facts of this account are definitely based upon authentic traditions. 
It recounts the story of a powerful Muslim, Caliph Hakim, who was in the habit of visiting the city disguised as a commoner. In one of these visits, he enters a cavern, which is frequented by members of the Sabian faith, a surviving Gnostic sect, whose establishments offered hashish. There, Hakim is befriended by a young man, Yosuf, who introduces the reluctant Caliph to hashish, telling him, this box contains the paradise promised by your prophet and his believers. If you weren't so scrupulous, I could soon put you into the whore's arms without making you pass over the bridge of Al-Sirat. Al-Sirat being the Islamic counterpart of the Zoroastrian Kinvat bridge, which is mentioned in the Arda Viraz Namag and crossed with the aid of a potent cannabis infusion. At first reluctant, Hakim gives in to the temptation, stating that this marvelous paste, which is the same, perhaps, as ambrosia, the food of the immortals. After feeling its full effects, Hakim states to his new Sabian friend Yusuf, Hashish renders you equal to God. And after imbibing the drug, Hakim's visions expands, Vision expands, the bar barriers erected between the conscious and the unconscious vanish, and he experiences feelings of exaltation, rapture, and frenetic excitement. Knapp, 1980. The two friends in de Nerval's tale were said to meet together to enjoy hashish on a number of occasions, and as Journey to the Orient tells us, the experience of Hakim and Yusuf included potent visionary dosages. Quote, when both of them were deeply intoxicated by the hashish, something strange occurred. The two friends entered into a certain communion of ideas and impressions. Yusuf imagined that his companion, kicking the earth, which wasn't worthy of his glory, soared upwards towards the heavens and, taking him by the hand, carried him off into space amidst the whirling stars and glittering marvels of the Milky Way. Pale but crowned by a luminous ring, Saturn increased its, in its size as it approached them, followed by seven moons borne along in the wake of its rapid advance. Then, but who could relate what happened when they had reached this divine home of their dreams? Human language can only reveal experiences conforming to our nature, and we must bear in mind that the two friends conversed together in this celestial dream. Even the names by which they addressed each other were no longer names which are known on earth. Nerval, 1851, and I believe it's republished in 1972. That's what that's about. Like a true scholar, Chris Bennett uh, uses the form of uh, whatever form of uh, citation mixture of MLA, APA, Chicago style. Anyone who's uh, achieved a certain level of scholarship starts to adapt their own style of notation that is appropriate to the exact work they are working on. In one of the heavy criticisms of my uh, Celtic mysteries of corresponding the Irish gods to the Kabbalistic tree of life is that it's very dry because I was using a very strict MLA style, but of course demonstrating that I used that strict style is what allowed me to skip my BA and get straight into grad school. So mastering technique has its purpose. Can it be dry and boring and render your book less interesting than the one I'm currently reading? Absolutely. The information though, of course, is always nice to be presented in a concise way, which some academic styles do allow for, even insofar as it, they make it rather dry and boring. Because you can't, if you're writing some forms of academia, you can't just um, 
you can't, what's it called? You know, you can't make it flower. You can't illustrate it with extra little words here and there. Um, but it's nice when you can. And that's what master scholars do, and I think that's what we're doing right now. I might need to take a broke break, and uh, <laughs> my voice, my speech has been all. Maybe I need to uh, invoke the hashishim myself right now and come back and finish this, because we're moving on to the story, this story of astral travel. Yes, I'll be right back. The story of astral travel comes in at a time when many occultists had decided to take things further with the magic mirrors and step through the looking glass. And not surprisingly, there are many such accounts of the use of hashish for astral travel from this period. Nerval connects it with the next story, that of Hiram Abif, or Adoniram, and the building of Solomon's temple, with the story overheard by Caliph Hakim, who found himself imprisoned in an asylum while under the influence of Hashish, and his claims of being the Caliph went unbelieved, and instead identified his continuing insanity to his captors and caretakers. In the asylum, Hakim is paid a visit by the great Arab alchemist Ibn Sina, Avicenna, or Avicenna, as often pronounced, and he is overheard saying, the word hachishot appears in the Song of Songs and the inebriating properties of this mixture. Unfortunately, the caliph was unable to hear the rest of the famed alchemist's words. In this regard, it is worth noting that Nerval's account is the first known written reference which refers openly to cannabis in the Bible that I am aware of. And here we have a little lovely illustration Chris Bennett has put in. Nerval based Caliph Hakim on the actual historical figure of Al-Hakim bi Amr Allah, 996-1021. Sixth Fatimid Caliph of the sixth and sixteenth Ismaili Imam, Druze founder Ad Darazi proclaimed him as the incarnation of God in ten eighteen. Another way the stories of Caliph Hakim and Hiram Abif are tied in is in the description of an assassination or attempted assassination on Hakim by three assailants, which are in many ways reminiscent of the three murderers of Harim Abif in the Masonic table. In Nerval's account, Hakim escapes the assassination attempt, and Nerval is told by his host, Sheikh Said Esharazi, that the teachings of Caliph Hakim were the foundation of the secretive sect to which he belongs, the mysterious Druzes. Adoniram, in the next tale, fares less well and perishes in the same way as he does in the traditional Masonic account. Curiously, after Nerval's placing of hashish in Solomon's Song of Songs through the mouth of Avicenna, we see no direct reference to hashish or cannabis in the story. However, there may be an allusion in the account of Belkis, the Queen of Sheba, or in Nerval's version of the tale, Sabia, likely another means of connecting the two stories, i.e. Sabia, Sabian. Belkis gives Solomon a portion that renders him unable to move, much like the catatonic state we discussed in chapter 6, and then its effects render him unconscious and send him off into dreams. In relation to that, it's interesting to note that Nerval refers to how one of Hakim's ancestors, quote, hid himself for a few days and said that he had been 
taken up to the heavens. Later he withdrew to an underground vault, and the people claimed that he had disappeared from the earth without dying like other men. This is, of course, reminiscent of the story of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The story even has Jesus appear to Hakim and the doubts of Hakim, who came to recognize his own divinity while on Hashish corresponded to those of the Son of Man at Gethsemane, i.e. Jesus on the cross. But above all, he was almost crushed by the thought that this divinity had first been revealed to him in the ecstasies of Hashish. Would a herb of the fields be able to create such marvels? Nerval, 1851. Could all this be an account of an even deeper occult and Masonic history? In Gerard de Nerval, The Mystic's Dilemma, Bettina Knapp states that Nerval's version of the Solomon Sheba Adoniram myth had special significance for the Masons. In fact, every detail and event depicted is replete with Masonic symbolism. Knapp, 1980. Quote, Adoniram's ordeal has become the essential part of the ceremony of reception to the Grand Master of the, in the Masonic order. In the Masonic initiation ceremony, as in the ancient mysteries, the acolyte experiences the death of the profane self and the birth of the new spiritual being. The object of the initiation is to lead the neophyte into the experience of an inner illumination, the transcendental light or the center of the self. According to some 18th century Masons, namely Martin de Pascali, the initiation is supposedly to help man reintegrate back into the universal pleroma, universal godhead. Knapp, 1980. In Nerval's account of the story of Adunadim, the hero takes a Dantesque descent into the underground, which has also been described as an Orphic ascent. There, Adonarim meets his ancestor Tubal Cain, the master blacksmith, and learns that there they preserved their esoteric traditions and, in their secret traditions, Tubal Cain explains men may partake of the tree of knowledge without perishing from it. Bayes, 1964. One wonders if some sort of initiation ceremony like that which has been suggested around Dante's Inferno is indicated in the story. Quote, Nerval is both Hakem, Sik Hakim, and Adoniram, and it is quite possible that he chose these two legends because of his feelings of identification with the two oppressed but superior heroes. Nerval is like the prince who discovers his duality and mysterious divinity under the influence of Hashish, who is frustrated, misunderstood, and finally committed to an asylum. Brackets. Nerval had similar struggles with mental health and had extended forced care at times. And the pre previous reference uh, to Hashish is also in brackets, which means inserted by the author. In spite of this, his divine nature triumphs and is liber the liberated hero leaves the asylum to become the founder of a new syncretic religion, exactly what Nerval hoped his occult student's studies would accomplish. Hakem is therefore Nerval the poet-priest. The Drusian religion interested Nerval immensely because it provided him with a living example of syncretism. As modern descendants of the Gnostics, Pythagoreans, and Essenes, Nerval maintains that this was the source of Masonic mysticism brought into the Western world by the Templars during the Middle Ages. 
Bay, 1964. As noted earlier, in the closing chapters of the manuscript found in Saragossa, the hero of the tale, Alphonse, is taken to a Druze sheik by guides who recovered their strength by drinking and smoking hashish. Pataki, 1815-1995. As we shall see, other figures associated with both Hashish and secret societies were also influenced by this same group. Druzes have maintained a reputation for growing hashish to this day, and Lebanon's outspoken Druze leader, Walid Jumblat, has been calling for the legalization of hashish in Lebanon, which has a long history of marijuana cultivation. The concern over secrets such as these has made me question whether Nerval's death was a suicide, as has been the accepted view. Certainly, the publication of the story of the central myth of masonry, that of Hiram Abif, would constitute a breach of a mason who had taken the sacred oath. Nerval was found hung by a white cord, hat still on his head, in a lonely, dark Parisian alley. We have seen the sacred role that cords have played in certain secret societies, so perhaps there was some symbolism intended here. In a poem dedicated to Nerval, which refers to Cain and Tubal-Cain and Adoniram, Nick Leon refers to Nerval's ending, Hanging by some mystic cord, what matters in an alley? There are some footnotes in this paragraph, but you have to get your own copy of this beautiful book to get into detail. As Carlyle noted of an oath to keep the secrets of the craft taken over a skull in a Masonic Templar degree, if ever I willfully deviate from this my solemn obligation, may my light be put out from among men as that of Judas Iscariot was for betraying his lord and master. Carlyle, 1825. Judas, as will be remembered, hung himself over his betrayal. Quote, Nerval saw himself as a type of vehicle, a transforming agent through which or by which the outer world could become manifest. He was privileged to see directly beyond the world of appearance into the cosmic pleroma, owing to some rash act on his part. Perhaps he had revealed, like Prometheus and Cain, esoteric secrets to mankind. He too was doomed to punishment. Nerval was so convinced of his martyrdom, of his guilt, that on certain occasions he was able to take the situation in stride, knowing as he did that he would be forgiven eventually, and that he would attain a superior sphere, but only after the ordeal of life had ended. And there's a beautiful illustration below of death, the death of Gerard de Nerval, illustration by Gustave Doré. So this was uh, quite a big deal if... uh, an artist like Dory was portraying such a significant hanging. It makes it seem like, yes, it was definitely not a suicide. <clears throat> Nerval himself was also a member of the famous Club des Hashishins, which borrowed their name from the cult which formed around the old man of the mountain and his group of hashish-ingesting assassins. Club des Hashishins was active from about 1844 to 1849, and counted among its Parisian members such literary and intellectual elite as Dr. Jacques-Joseph Moreau, Théophile Gautier, Charles Baudelaire, Honor de Balzac, Gustave Flaubert, Victor Hubo, and Alexandre Dumas. Monthly séances were held at the Hotel Pimodan, later renamed Hotel de Lausanne. After being introduced to hashish by Moreau, he, who became familiar with the psychoactive resin in Egypt, Gautier created, according to the modern Masonic sensationalist Leo Zagami, 
quote, an Illuminati club called the Hashish Club, which included the participation of many luminaries. It was considered a secret initiation of the highest degree and was sought after by Masons and intellectuals such as Dumas, 18th degree of the AASR, who was devoted to experiments with Hashish, Zagami, 2016. The club's pantomimic rites were modeled on an oriental order, the assassins, commanded by autocratic called the Vieux de la Martin, or Prince of Assassins, Davenport, Hines, 2012. Coffee was served with a mixture of hashish, cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, pistachios, sugar, orange juice, butter, cardamom, and cantharides, Spanish fly. This resulted in a thick green mixture like a jam, also known as dawamesk, medicine of immortality, and which we have referred to before. Certainly many of the members of Club des Hashishins shared a deep knowledge and interest in occult matters. In his Le Comte de Monte Cristo, the Count of Monte Cristo, Dumas included the story of an encounter with the hashish-eating Sinbad the Sailor, whom he based on Hassan Isaba of the Assassins, and a young Frenchman named Franz, who Sinbad offers some of his green preserve. After a delightful dinner in Sinbad's decorated island cave, his servant Ali serves desserts and other delicacies. Dot, dot, dot. Quote, Between the two baskets, he placed a small silver cup with a silver cover. The care with which Ali placed this cup on the table roused Franz's curiosity. He raised the cover and saw a kind of greenish paste, something like preserved angelica, which was perfectly unknown to him. He replaced the lid, as ignorant of what the cup contained as he was before he had looked at it, and then cast Casting his eyes towards his host, he saw him smile at his disappointment. You cannot guess, said he, what there is in that small vase, can you? No, I really cannot. Well, then, that green preserve is nothing less than the ambrosia which Heba served at the table of Jupiter. But, replied Franz, this ambrosia, no doubt in passing through mortal hands, has lost its heavenly appellation and assumed a human name. In vulgar phrase, what you may term this composition, for which, to tell the truth, I do not feel any particular desire. Ah, thus it is that our material origin is revealed, cried Simbad. We frequently pass so near to happiness without seeing, without regarding it, or if we do see and regard it, yet without recognizing it. Are you a man for the substantials, and is gold your god? Taste this, and the mines of Peru, Guzarat, and Golconda are opened to you. Are you a man of imagination, a poet? Taste this, and the boundaries of possibility disappear. The fields of infinite space open to you. You advance free in heart, free in mind, into the boundless realms of unfettered reverie. Are you ambitious, and do you seek after the greatness of the earth? Taste this, and in an hour you will be a king, not a king of petty kingdom hidden in some corner of Europe like France, Spain, or England, but King of the world, king of the universe, king of creation, without bowing at the feet of Satan, you will be king and master of all the kingdoms of the earth. Is it not tempting what I offer you? And it is, is it not an easy thing, since it is only to do thus? Look. At these words he uncovered the small cup which contained the substance so lauded. 
took a teaspoonful of the magic sweetmeat, raised it to his lips, and swallowed it slowly with his eyes half shut and his head bent backwards. Franz did not disturb him whilst the, he absorbed his favorite sweetmeat, but when he had finished, he inquired, "'What then is this precious stuff?' "'Did you ever hear,' he replied, "'of the old man of the mountain "'who attempted to assassinate Philip Augustus?' "'Of course I have. "'Well, you know he reigned over a rich valley "'which was overhung by the mountain "'whence he derived his picturesque name. "'In this valley were magnificent gardens "'planted by Hassan ben Saba, "'and in these gardens isolated pavilions.' Into these pavilions he admitted the elect, and there, says Marco Polo, gave them to eat a certain herb, which transported them to paradise, in the midst of ever-blooming shrubs, ever-ripe fruit, and ever-lovely virgins. What these happy persons took for reality was but a dream, but it was a dream so soft, so voluptuous, so enthralling, that they sold themselves body and soul to him who gave it to them, and obedient to his orders as to those of a deity, struck down the designated victim, died in torture without a murmur. Believing that the death they underwent was but a quick transition to that life of delights of which the holy herb now before you had given them a slight foretaste. Then, cried Franz, it is hashish? I know that, by name at least. That is it precisely, Signor Aladdin. It is hashish, the purest and most unadulterated hashish of Alexandria, the hashish of Abu Ghor, and celebrate the celebrated maker, the only man, the man to whom there should be built a palace inscribed with these words, a grateful world to the dealer in happiness. Do you know, said Franz, I have a very great inclination to judge for myself of the truth or exaggeration of your eulogies. Judge for yourself, Signor Aladdin. Judge, but do not confine yourself to one trial. Like everything else, we must habituate the senses to a fresh impression, gentle or violent, sad or joyous. There is a struggle in nature against this divine substance, in nature which is not made for joy and clings to pain. Nature subdued must yield in the combat. The dream must succeed to reality, and then the dream reigns supreme. Then the dream becomes life, and life becomes the dream. But what changes occur? It is only by comparing the pains of actual being with the joys of the assumed existence that you would desire to live no longer, but to dream thus forever. When you return to this mundane sphere from your visionary world, you would seem to leave a Neapolitan spring for a Lapland winter, to quit paradise for earth, heaven for hell. Taste the hashish, guest of mine, taste the hashish. Franz's only reply was to take a teaspoonful of the marvelous preparation, about as much in quantity as his host had eaten, and lift it to his mouth. Dumas, 1845. So that's from Le Comte de Monte Cristo, par Alexandre Dumas. And there's a beautiful picture of an old cover of the edition. Dumas' account of the serving of hashish was very similar to the description of the distribution of the green paste at Club de Hashishines, recorded by Théophile Gautier, 1811 to 1872. He says, 
The doctor stood by a buffet on which lay a platter filled with small Japanese saucers. He spooned a morsel of paste or greenish jam about as large as a thumb from a crystal vase and placed it next to the silver spoon on each saucer. The doctor's face radiated enthusiasm. His eyes glittered. His purple cheeks were aglow. The veins in his temples stood out strongly, and he breathed heavily through dilated nostrils. This will be deducted from your share in paradise, he said, as he handed me my portion. Gautier, 1846. And here there's a very cruel little sketch. Um, underneath it says, depiction of the Prince of Assassins, Dr. Moreau, illustrated by Gautier at one of the gatherings of the Hashishins. And below that, another illustration, very cool as well, illustration of Gautier smoking hashish on page 629. We know that m members of the Hashishin's Club in Paris were also aware of Rabelais' es esoteric reference to cannabis, for Gautier made cryptic references to this when describing his hashish visions. What bizarrely contorted faces, what abdomens huge with Pantagruelian mockeries, all the Pantagruelian dreams passed through my fantasy. Gautier also made some very f interesting comments on the effects of hashish. I was in this blessed phase of hashish, which Orientals call kief. I could no longer feel my body. The links between matter and spirit were broken. I moved by my will alone in an atmosphere which offered no resistance. In this way, I imagine souls behave in the world which we go to after death. Honor Balzac according to some, an initiated Martinist, wrote of his experience under the influence of a hashish-infused cigarette prior to attending a performance of Giochino's Rossini's La Gazza, and described how the muse came to me through shining clouds stripped of all the imperfections that human work contains, and the orchestra became a vast, incomprehensible mechanism, since all I could make out were the necks of double basses, the daring of bows, the golden curves of trombones, the clarinets, the finger holes, but no musicians, just one or two powdered wigs, motionless, and two swollen faces, grimacing. Not all those who attended the Hashishin's club were receptive to the experiences. Balzac barely dabbled. Victor Hugo wrote, Leave the Kief to the Turks, and Baudelaire's Le Paradis Artificiels, 1860, was a rejection of the drug experience and the damages it wrought. Baudelaire's repudiation of hashish and opium caused fellow Hashishin's club member Flaubert to comment with that with in Baudelaire's poetic rejection, you can smell the yeast of Catholicism. <laughs> and in a personal letter to Baudelaire that, I would have preferred you not condemn hashish opium over indulgence. How do you know what may ultimately come of all that? Flaubert, 1860. In reference to the potential art and poetry which might arise from its use. Another curious 19th century account that ties hashish with Freemasonry is the 1879 German work Hashish Genuss in Abendland, Anleitung zu Kenntnis und Gebrauch des feinsten und merkwürdigsten 
Genusmittels. Hashish's enjoyment in the West guide to the knowledge and the use of the finest and most remarkable pleasures. That's a good, that's a good word, Genusmittels, auf Deutsch. By Ferdinand Amerson. Amerson was well known before the publication of his tome on hashish for his book Das Land der Freiheit, The Land of Freedom, 1874. Amerson states he wrote hashish genusen im Abendland in order to establish free, non-mysterious hashish masonry, masonry, which can easily attain the importance of a new religion equal to that of the young Christianity. Amerson, 1879. Fascinating. And here's a quote from Amerson. I am by the fact that I know the hashish at the same time became a confidant of the Freemasons' secret. The lodges of the Freemasons, I think, are in their secret part, that is, for the higher degrees, nothing but hashish palaces. Wow. It is true that in old times, in the early morning, a man of intelligence in the most refined intellectual hashish state has made the following considerations. The pleasure is too glorious to give it to any man. Perhaps unworthy, only the good ones should have it. <laughs> For this reason, he had established a secret union among confidants who had to conspire to inaugurate the hashish use only those who had proven themselves in certain trials, which then took place at community meetings. So this is, I just got to interject and say, what a far cry from the way we were raised in the 80s and 90s with, you know, the, the, the whole culture is that hashish or, or these uh, cannabis were, were these things for lesser people, whereas here are some of the greatest writers and thinkers and intellectuals and poets and artists of, of, our, of all time are making it quite clear that they believed it was something reserved for those who could really handle the deeper, more magical and heavenly divine states of human experience. It's just fascinating. The servant of the guardianship had a good sense of pleasure, and the hashish ruffian always had a certain degree of shame, and the spirit was aroused and widened, and the imagination in particular played its masterpiece. The great ideas which have come to light in the meetings are recorded in a holy covenant and further developed with every meeting. The principal content of this is the beautiful thought of the noble great task of mankind, while the other enjoyment during the hashish intoxication has its own happiness. The real lodges nowadays still carry a tincture which is branched off from the ancient one of the founder of the covenant, and which is filled with fresh tinctures continually. Amerson, 1879. Like Caliph Hakim in Nerval's tale, Ferdinand Amerson's use of hashish led him to identification with divinity and recurring lives. Quote, the later series of ideas, which were not to be reproduced any longer, were concerned with the new religion based on hashish, and the peculiarity of each of the existing ones, that there was always something dizzy about the founding. This, of course, also the case with hashish, a beautiful delusion is used as a bait, but as small as possible. The thought game goes beyond the persons of the world-famous swindlers, such as Count St. Germain, Cagliostro, and the like, with their pretensions that they had already lived many centuries ago, which I could well explain by the hashish effect. And the hashish appeared to me as the much-sought stone of the wise, as rejuvenation. 
to hold me with these miracles for one and the same personality, and to throw myself together with Pythagoras. The men of the same kind who appeared in the course of history, who were to be something very special, were all I myself, and my present existence is also only a single form of my entire past and future. It was a great uplifting thought to which I gave myself with delight, yet at the same time clearly aware that it was only a beautiful delusion. Mesmerism and spiritism were also the starting points. All this was only myself, and my present existence is also only a single form of my entire past and future. Is not Muhammad the founder of hashish masonry? Will not the pilgrims be introduced to this mystery when they arrive at Mecca? I am now also a Muslim in this sense. The Europeans are also to be put together by me. I am about to become one of the prophets, the hashish prophet. The image of the founder now gradually fuses with his own. In the end, I am the one who took the thought of the founder, so I am equal to him. Amerson, 1879. However, other selections for Amerson's work also indicate the sort of paranoia which some have experienced under the use of hashish. A scene he describes of walking the streets under the influence of hashish gives us a clear example of his thought processes. He imagines two captains have given me inviting Freemason signals. I feel a mild horror at this remark, assuming that this is the beginning of the persecution of the covenant against me. I supposedly dismissed them two times in succession. When they invited me on the bridge to the coffee house, I was appalled by the fact that I had not been poisoned so as to get me out of the world. Nevertheless, I accept everything willingly and drink it courageously, consoling myself with the fact that the danger might perhaps be best evoked by a stranger. Later on in the conversation on the bridge, I hear the alleged members of the family saying to each other, he is a master. Amerson, 1879. Up to this point in the tale, Amerson himself gives no indication he is a member of an existing Masonic lodge, and much of his thoughts on it should be framed more as suspicions or intuitions he has come up with while high. <laughs> be careful. Be careful of this getting too high. You might think you're a Freemason or that the Freemasons are after you. <laughs> oh, I love it. It is only at the end of the account he realizes aspects of his hashish adventure have been some sort of initiation into an organization referred to as the Covenant and League that was comprised of hashish-using intellectuals. When he is confronted by a member of this group who questions whether he is an initiate of the Order Revealing Secrets, Amerson responds, Did I unconsciously and involuntarily strike a string that aroused a reverberation at the League? When the answer comes in affirmative, Amerson responds with these words, What am I to do to join your honorable covenant? The great oath of secrecy, replied the assembled unanimously, solemnly. They gave me time to consider, so it is. I am ready, I said with quick resolution. I will take care not to list all the foolishness which they now, after having secretly led me into the great hall with other disguised men made it with me. Let the ancient ritual in which every little thing is full, as I myself will see later, not be mutilated, they said devoutly, and subjugated me to a binge of intimidation so that I should not break the oath. Pistols, presumably loaded in front of my face, a sharp guideline dragged across my throat, and they clumsily clothed me with the skin. I could read 
pills for swallowing, which might be poisoned, etc. All this was from a solemn raising and well-spoken text, which made the matter bearable. At last, when the patients which so long had been preserved, they asked unanimously, You will sow with full determination your admission to the covenant? What else could I say more than aloud decided, Yes, the devil now went on to this. I felt as overwhelmed with fresh water, the congregation lifted their coverings so that among them I could see the whole horde of my acquaintances together with some new scholars, writers, and artists, and all collapsed into a laugh now, and then the shouts were out of the question, O oh, thou incorrigible idealist, Don Quixote, fantastic light-loving beauty. I was about to break out in anger, but the laughter had such an amiable tone in the faces of my tormentors in spite of my anxiety that I was so eager to meet them that I immediately joined the ruling laughter, and thus showed that I was not willing to accept the well-played comedy. You see, thoughtful dreamer, they mocked, singing, what you did with your hashish. Now by the side, another one said, since we are so beautifully together, and if you will forgive us the Sabbaths, we will also taste the wilderness and dream of your miraculous miracle. Brackets, i.e., his hashish stash. Amerson, 1879. Amerson's intuitions in this story proved to be true, and he was told that he had caught the attention of the League through the earlier publication of Das Land der Freiheit, and they had decide, then decided to invite him into their secret order leading to the initiation described. How interesting and coincidental is it that we're currently looking at this text and having just considered the League in Hermann Hesse's Journey to the East story, which I did. If you haven't heard that, you need to. Hashish and other substances also held the interest of a number of members of the Masonic offshoot discussed earlier, Martinism. Martinism had become popular in the 19th century, largely through the work of Gerard Anaclet Vincent Encot, 1865-1916, popularly known by his pseudonym Papus. Papus claimed to have several of St. Martin's original notebooks, something that Papus hoped would give some legitimacy to the revival. Papus is also noted as copying part of Cagliostro's Egyptian rite from a transcription taken from an original copy. Harrison, 2017. Papus was the organizer of the International Masonic Conference in Paris in 1908, and besides being the head of the Martinist order, he held membership in the Theosophical Society, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light, and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn Temple in Paris, the Rosicrucian Kabbalistic Order of the Rose Cross. Rose Croix. Theodore Roos of the Ordo Templi Orientis also elevated Papus to that order's 10th degree. Papus also studied material which came from Charles Nautier and Cazotte. Papus wrote of hashish and other drugs in his Très Elementaire de Magie Pratique, Elemental Treatise of Practical Magic, 1893. To keep within the limits of our study, we shall only deal here with the following stimulants, alcohol, coffee, tea, morphine, hashish. There are many other substances employed. 
Papus wrote that in 1893. And here is what he says. Hashish opium morphine. Many people figure for themselves that hashish fits into the class of the most dangerous drugs on the psychic viewpoint that can be handled and immediately gives sublime visions and plunges the experimenter in ecstasy. However, thus presented, the action of hashish does answer to nothing of its reality. This substance, as with opium, but is with much more intensity, acts on force reserves of the nervous centers, emptying them in an instant of any reserve, and throws one en masse into the intellectual sphere. Also, ideas are exaggerated, amplified, embellished in a prodigious way. But we still need that the primordial idea and the paramount physical sensation to exist. So a lamp becomes, under the influence of hashish, a magnificent palace lit by 10,000 lights and dripping jewels. On the other hand, when the incident idea is vulgar, impressions are also. So a beginner taking hashish without preconceived idea and waiting for what was going to happen simply dreamt it was a pipe and that he smoked himself. <laughs> hashish is an amplifier and not a creator. But this exhilarating action is followed by a terrible reaction. Reserve centers emptied of their contents agonize the unfortunate imprudent and most awful nightmares, the most poignant pain, are a natural continuation of dreams, charm, and astral sensations. Opium, which morphine is derived from, has the same action, but with less intensity, and the unfortunate slave of this substance, willing to flee the reaction, which is imminent, gradually increasing the dose of the poison up to complete exhaustion, is soon followed by death. Magical standpoint, the danger of these drugs is considerable, since they increase the empire to be impulsive about the willingness and need a good strong will to not to be dominated by these substances. Incarnation embodiment of the soul of the world in matter are key. We do not want to unduly to unduly lengthen this presentation, and we believe what we have just said will be enough to understand these exciting theory. Papus, 1893. At least 12 issues of the Martinist Masonic Journal, the Initiation, of which Papus was director, the director, contained articles on the use of hashish. An 1889 issue included an essay, Testament de un hashishin, from regular contributor, the pharmacist, theosophist, and founder of cannabinology, Jules Girard. Also known as Numa Pandorak, Giraud wrote about the ability of hashish to see through the veil of Isis and referred to it as the guardian angels in jam, the patriotism in marmalade, the providence in compote. Giraud, Giraud uh, wrote numerous articles on hashish for various occult journals through the end of the 19th and start of the 20th century. In his Predictions d'un Hashishin sur la Hashish, which appeared in 1905 edition of Le Voix, Revue Mensuelle en Haute Science, he wrote how to take Hashish is to place oneself in the hemp of the Lord. It is not a vulgar drunkenness. It is a retreat, a consultation of a tabernacle, a Eucharistic duty, a noble habit of sacred intoxication, an Orphic diathesis. Giraud. 
1905. A disapproving critic in an 1889 edition of The Theosophist, Volume 10, wrote of Giraud's celebration of cannabis and mysticism, The Great Paradoxes of Numa Pandorak, 1888, as a disgraceful rhapsody on the pleasures of intoxication by a writer who seems to practice what he preaches. Some very cool um, flyers copied in, in on initiation and some uh, from the... Yeah, just so amazing. This book, whole book has amazing... Uh, illustrations that haven't been published before. Cover of L'Initiation, a Masonic journal that Papus was editor of, and an illustration of Papus from Leo Taxel's 19th century anti-Masonic journal Le Diable. Other figures associated with the 12 Martinist masters at the time of Papus within the Order Martiniste of 1891, also known as Concile Occult des 12 de la Rose Croix, that wrote about and experimented with drugs included Stanislas de Gaida, Paul Sedir, and Josephin Paladin, as well as later initiates like René Guénon. Sedir dedicated his Les Plantes Magiques, 1902, to Pappas. Les Plantes Magiques covered filters, tinctures, unguents, and the various herbs used in their preparation, and these included a variety of psychoactive plants. Quote, Let me introduce to you this small essay dedicated to you, who was the first to awaken my spirit to the things of the occult. Since the twelve years that you have admitted me to the show of your labor, many faces of science have passed before me, which you have made to see the beauties of all and also its flaws. Now that I finally understood the path you follow, I am pleased to say in public the great debt I owed to you. Sadir, 1902. The dedication of this particular volume from Sadir to Papus whom he credits with awakening him to the occult, may well indicate that this introduction came via the aid of the plants discussed. Sadir certainly indicated a keen awareness of drugs and their occult use. Quote, Hashish and opium are two of the most known among the plants of mental action effects, but no one in the Occident knows of the scientific handling of them unless the person was to be initiated in the Orient. The stories of Quincy or Baudelaire, which regardless of their merit of art and of sincerity, does not give any indication on the possibilities of such admixtures. We All we can say is that the use of such drugs can lead to intellectual ecstasy that, if the subject could, in advance, can by sheer force of will master his mental strengths and become able to govern the association of ideas without excitement, for this is not an easy a task. Otherwise, if a hashishin has not fixed understanding of it, he leaves on an adventure in a boat without rudder on an ocean otherwise more terrible than the Sea of India with its cyclones, and he may return with madness as a companion, or even never return at all. Sadir, 1902. Paul Sadir, 1871-1926. The Indian hemp, this is a quote, the Indian hemp gives an extracted resin, which is the famous hashish. This ointment, smoked or swallowed, provides some ecstasies poorly understood in the West. But some Muslim sects, Buddhists, and Asia's Taoists use it in an intellectual dosage for the study of psychurgy, analysis and study of the mind. Sidir, 1902. Giving more evidence of the popularity of such substances in these circles, Karl Raschke refers to Marquis Stanislas de Gaida and Josephin Paladin, who smoked hashish, cultivated decadence, and endeavored to revive the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. Raschke, 
1980. Peladon does make reference to the hashish and opium in his writings, but it is more with Stanislaw de Gaida, 1861-1897. We see the open endorsement of sub- such substances. Hashish always favors and sometimes spontaneously determines the exit from the astral body. Indian hemp is a magical herb, first and foremost. De Gaida, 1891. De Gaida's Rosa Mystica, 1885, contained the following poem dedicated to cannabis and the poppy. The Venetian Flowers Yet dangerous flowers, you're generous sometimes and heal. Injured hearts, sweet is your caress to the outcasts what oppresses, what cannot be banished, the souvenir white poppy of asia when the cold aspasi forces one of us at his knees thy opium o plant makes her soul indolent and against sorrow all of brass and your bitter morphine calm the poor mother that obsession bites from a dead child to the solitary monster who hides under the ground all hearts remaining deaf to his love Divine hashish, you are drunk, the beautiful Horus drunk to the lips of coral of your seraglio. Salute flora equivocal, the unfortunate invokes you. Tamers of sorrows, salute, O flowers. Be blessed, in short, saps that pour to the man with a pale face, the quiet forgotten. As Jose Moreno notes, even the traditionalist, ultra-conservative, and bourgeois Gnostic René Guénon is attested to have used hashish and opium as an aid to contemplation, at least until marriage. And the most plausible thing is that he persisted in it later, since it began in the Sufi monasteries from 1912, trying to keep it in the greatest of secrets. Moreno, 2012. A curious and humorous account in La Magie de à Paris, Thimi, 1934, records how certain hidden masters told René Guénon to smoke cannabis from a water pipe. The story has it that the occult author Zam Botiva had sought Guénon to write a foreword for his Asia Mysteriosa, a work that involved channeled messages from three sages who were supposedly stationed in the Himalayas, the sort of occult shadow hidden master figures popularized by the works of Eckhartshausen and Blavatsky, and according to René Timi, Guénon insisted on questioning them on their authenticity by choosing a Sanskrit word, Hamsa, which Thimi stated signifies the symbolic swan, and also the liberation of the mind-spirit to see if they could identify it and test them. They responded, smoke hemp root in a water pipe and you will know what Hamsa is. I think a few things may have become altered in Thimi's retelling of this story. I have my doubts that Hamsa was used as a Sanskrit word, as the identical word is used in the Mideast for Hand of Fatima, and amongst the Druze it is seen as a reference to a hidden messiah who is periodically reborn. This figure of Caliph Hakim, discussed in Nerval's story, was considered an incarnation of Hamsa, and considering his realization of deity in the story came through the ingestion of hashish, the answer from Botiva's hidden masters fits with the earlier account. However, the suggestion to smoke hemp root would be peculiar, 
as although the roots of cannabis do have some medicinal qualities, they would not be psychoactive smoked. And this again is likely a mistake on the part of Thime. This response is a little ironic when you know a few decades prior Blavatsky's own secret occult rulers, the Mahatmas, were at times written off as the stoned hallucinations of her hashish use. According to Timé, Guénon, who at this point in his life was abstaining, refused to let them use the foreword, as he was not taken with the sages who invited him, the grave philosopher, to smoke hemp in a water pipe. Timmy, 1934. However, in a rebuttal, Bovita produced a foreword written by Guénon in a 1931 edition of Revue de Paulere and said it had been rejected prior to Guénon's story of its refusal, with the comment deriding Guénon as the grand master of occultism who distributes with the morgue and sufficiency of the medicine of Molière, plasters and ointments hermetic. Bovita, 1931. The Initiation also included works from the Freemason Victor Michal, quote, who was familiar with crystal gazing, with hashish, astral projection, table turning, and a certain theory of Saidism, as taught by the old man of the mountain, i.e., the chief of assassins of Lebanon, Godwin, 1994. Michal contributed the following poem dedicated to cannabis with dedications to the great pantagruelist Rabelais. Hemp, hemp. Hemp is of humanity, living under the laws of harmony and flourishing in liberty, the strict image define. And Rabelais, by his burren of hemp eternalizing glory, when he gave it for godfather, his hero of august memory. The Pentagrulian's herbs grow straight in spud space. It discards of its furrow thief's bad herbs slugs. Its leaves goes by five and seven, number of group and series set as the field formed a forest that the brave wind fury. As far as that goes of humanity, hemp is born male and female. At the hour of puberty, the double sex reveal itself, and we see the field covering itself of a luminous dust. Stamens just open themselves. This is the love that populates the earth. Swaddling cloth, bed sheet, or grave cloth, hemp which we make canvas from, follow man to his coffin. Still yesterday, it was a cloth, a sheet. Isn't the whole of humanity? to replace of memories that become the paper on which we write stories. Hemp doesn't only have a body. Of its spirit fiery flamed, its prodigal unsparing us the treasures. Of hemp hashish is the soul, hashish this precious juice. Of African or Asian hemp, which once drunken the gods, which they called ambrosia. None says that happiness isn't the human destiny which each carries in his heart the eternal hope innate. Of hashish they haven't tasted, cause a little of its green paste, then dream are made as reality. It's always, as always, the open door. Victor Michel. 
Michal is particularly notable for his close relationship with Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, 1831-1891, founder of the Theosophical Society, author of the occult classics Isis Unveiled, 1877, and The Secret Doctrine, 1888, and possibly the most influential figure of the 19th century occultism. It was Michal who developed the mediumistic faculties of Madame Blavatsky. Queensboro, 1933. Victor Michel. Michel used hashish in his work, a possible link to HPB's own disputed use, and he is said to have found HPB a wonderful trance subject. Lachman, 2012. A.L. Rawson, a painter, author, and mason, was a close friend of Blavatsky for over 40 years, stated concerning her relationship with cannabis. This is of Blavatsky. She had tried hashish in Cairo with success, and she again indulged in it in this city under the care of myself and Dr. Edward Sutton Smith, who she who had had a large experience with the drug among his patients at Mount Lebanon, Syria. She said, Hashish multiplies one's life a thousandfold. My experiences are as real as if they were ordinary events of actual life. Ah, I have the explanation. It is a recollection of my former existences, my previous incarnations. It is a wonderful drug, and it clears up profound mystery. Rawson, 1892. Wow, it's pretty remarkable that Blavatsky said that and attributes her memories of past lives to uh, hashish-inspired fantasies and imaginings. A.L. Rawson was one of a few lifelong friends Blavatsky had, and she half herself attested to the validity of his character. The two traveled throughout Europe and to the East together in the 1850s. The duo are said to have journeyed to Cairo, both disguised as Egyptian men, and seeking out magical knowledge from figures like the Coptic magician Paulos Metamon. In, quote, in Egypt, Rawson had also imparted various Freemasonic secrets to Blavatsky, after which the two had experimented with hashish. Nance, 2009. Rawson and Blavatsky also spent time in 1850s Cairo with Sir Richard Burton, who was also a devotee of hashish and esoteric pursuits, and who, as noted, suggested that the origins of Freemasonry, Freemasonry uh, were to be found in the Mideast. In Isis Unveiled, Blavatsky made the following comments concerning her good friend and associate Al A.L. Rawson. Quote, outside the East, we have met one initiate and one only, who, for some reasons best known to himself, does not make a secret of his initiation into the Brotherhood of Lebanon. It is a learn the learned traveler and artist Professor A. L. Rawson of New York City. This gentleman has passed many years in the East, four times visited Palestine, and has traveled to Mecca. It is safe to say that he has a priceless store of facts about the beginnings of the Christian Church, which none but one who has had free access to repositories closed against the ordinary traveler could collect, have collected. Blavatsky, 1877. The Brotherhood of Lebanon, in this case, are the Druzes, whom we have mentioned in relation to Nerval Pataki and others. Hakim Bey has suggested Rawson as a possible author of the 19th century essay, The Orgies of the Hemp Eaters, which recorded the use of cannabis as Homa by an Islamic group in Syria, as discussed in Chapter 3. And we have some sketches I've never actually seen before of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky and one depiction of Rawson from Freemasonry in the Holy Land, Handmarks of Hiram's Builders, Morris, 1875.
Quote, Rawson was deeply involved with secret societies. He was adopted as a brother by the Adwan Bedouins of Moab and initiated by the Druze in Lebanon. He was one of the founders of Nobles of the Mystic Shrine, a life member of the Society Rosicruciana Americae, a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Mason, and a member of the 95th degree in the Rite of Memphis. He wrote rituals for several secret societies. Johnson, 1994. Rawson was also an initiate of Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, Rosicrucian Society of England, a Masonic esoteric Christian order formed in 1865. We often call it Sock, Sauce Ross or Sauce Ross. And he was particularly influential in the drafting of the initiation rites or ceremonies of the Shriners, and is said to have provided much of the Arabic background. Rawson himself is said to have converted to Islam Islam, by some sources. In the Masonic myth, J. Kinney states that Rawson, whom he saw as something of a fringe Masonic confidence man, had claimed to have translated the original rituals from the Arabic and to have provided the new organization with actual contacts with Eastern Brotherhoods. Kinney, 2009. An article about Rawson from an 1896 edition of the Masonic Review refers to him as the founder of the Mystic Shrine in a glowing biography. Quote, after studying law, he made four visits to the Orient and in 1851-52 made a pilgrimage from Cairo to Mecca with the annual caravan. Disguised as a Mohammedan student of medicine, Mr. Rawson has been adopted as a brother by the Adwan Bedouins of Moab and initiated by the Druses of Mount Lebanon, is a founder of the Theosophical Society of the United States, and is a member of various literary, scientific, and geographical societies. Mr. Rawson had, in 18 53, been initiated into the order of Bektash dervishes, and from him came the inspiration of the incantations, the oriental symbolism and mystic allegory which makes the texture of this great fraternity's shriners ritual. The ancient Arabic order of the nobles of the mystic shrine for North America identifies Rawson as a pivotal and founding member of the shriners. They say, the constitutional authority from promulgating the principles and practice of the order was confided to Dr. Walter M. Fleming, 33rd degree, and his associates, William J. Florence, 32nd degree, Edward Eddy, 33rd degree, John W. Simmons, 33rd degree, Sherwood C. Campbell, 32nd degree, Oswald Merle de Aubin, 32nd degree, James S. Capel, 32nd degree, John A. Moore, 32nd degree, the last save have since entered the Unseen Temple, Charles T. McLenachan, 33rd degree, Albert P. Moriarty, 33rd degree, Daniel Sickles, 33rd degree, George W. Miller, 33rd degree, and William S. Patterson, 33rd, together with Albert L. Rawson, 32nd degree, the Arabic translator, all prominent ancient accepted Scottish Rite Masons and Knights Templar of New York, NY, who instituted the first temple of the order in that city under the title Mecca Temple, Nobles of the Mystic Shrine, on September 26th convenient date, 1872, Livingston, 1903. It was through Professor Albert L. Rawson who, through correspondences and knowledge of the language, the Shriners' rituals and history were comprised, and from which the order started. Livingston says, The order of the nobles of the Mystic Shrine was instituted by the Mohammedan Caliph Ali, the cousin germain and son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad, God favor and preserve him, in the year of the Hegira 25, 
which is AD 644, at Mecca in Arabia as an inquisition or vigilance committee to dispense justice and execute punishment upon criminals who escaped their just deserts through the tardiness of the courts and also to promote religious toleration among cultured men of all nations. The nobles perfected their organization and did such promote and efficient work that they excited alarm and even consternation in the hearts of evildoers in all countries under the star and crescent. The order is yet one of the most highly favored among many secret societies which abound in oriental countries and gather around its shrines a select few of the best educated and cultured classes. Its membership in all countries includes Christians, Israelites, Muslim, and men in high positions of learning and power. Frequent revolutions, however, in Arabia... Persia and Turkey have obscured the order from time to time, as appears from the many breaks in the continuity of the records at Mecca, but it has as often been revived. The nobles of the mystic shrine are sometimes mistaken for certain orders of dervishes, but this is an error. The only connection the order ever had with any sect of dervishes was with that called Bektash, White Hats. This warlike sect undertook to favor and protect the nobles in a time of great peril, and have ever since been counted among its most honored patrons. The famous Arab, known as the Bektash, from a peculiar high white hat or cap he, which he made from a sleeve of his gown, the founder of the sect named in his honor was an imam in the army of Sultan Amurath I, the first, the first Mohammedan who led an army into Europe A.D. 1330. This sultan was the founder of the military order of the Janizaries, so-called because they were freed Christian captives who were adopted into the faith of the army. Although his father, Orkan, began the work, Bektash adopted a white robe and cap and instituted the ceremony of kissing the sleeve. Among the modern promoters of the order in Europe was Herr Adam Weishaupt, a Rosicrucian, Rosy Cross mystic, and professor of law at the University of Ingolstadt, Bavaria. This distinguished scholar opened a temple first May 1776, significant year, the members of which were styled Illuminati and exercised profound influence before and after the French Revolution, all from Livingston, 1903. Historically, we know that figures associated with the order have been for centuries referred to as smoking hashish in a ceremonial way, stoth. 2015. Bektashi poetry speaks eloquently and frequently of hashish and opium as the paths to the divine. J. 1999. Opium and hashish were held by dervishes to secret kaif, or the quintessence of the soul. The Bektashi order was said to make naked novices under its influence take secret vows. Mixed with costly spices, it became baharab and took one to paradise. Goodwin, 2013. Kegusuz Abdal was a famous 15th century Bektashi dervish poet whose name, Kegusuz, is a catchword for hashish, and this has been interpreted by some scholars as a pseudonym implying that he was a hashish ad addict and was reputed to have composed many of his poems in a trance under the herb's effect. Mark Sedgwick refers to Giovanni Antonio Menavino's account of the Bektashi from Trattato dei Costumi dei Turci, published in 1548 in Venice. The dervishes, quote, Bektashis are very merry people. 
Their use of powdered hashish, acerol, to make them intoxicated, imbriaco, is noted but not condemned, Sedgwick 2016. One wonders whether Menavino himself has become a Bactashi, as his detailed knowledge of the Bactashis could hardly have been acquired by means other than participant observation and the Bactashis were present at the Ottoman court. The Bektash, my Arabic is obviously not existent. The Bektash are generally viewed as heretics by mainstream Islam, and their beliefs are a syncretic mix of esoteric elements. Quote, Besides different Sufi doctrines and practices, many religious traditions may have contributed to the development and appearance of Bektashism. Bektashism? Including ancient Turkic elements preserving pre-Islamic and non-Islamic beliefs and customs originating in shamanism, Buddhism, Manichaeism, Christianity, and antique religions. The Bektashis also incorporated anthropomorphic and Kabbalistic doctrines of letter and number symbolism. Doja, 2008. Gershom Sholem there's a name we know, has also seen an association between the Bektash and the heretical Jewish movement that formed around Sabati Zevi, Shulam, 1995. This is interesting in relation to the Messianic Jewish figure Joseph bin Zur, whose inspiration from Hashish was described in chapter 15. Writing in the 19th century, Richard Davy wrote that the Bektash are said to even be affiliated to some of the French Masonic lodges. Davy, 1897. This connection seems to have been well known. In 1906, H.N. Brailsford stated in reference to the Bektashi that their place in Islam is perhaps most nearly analogous to that of Freemasonry in Christianity. Fascinating. And that Bektashis themselves like to imagine that the Freemasons are kindred spirits. Brailsford, 1906. This is amazing. There may be some surviving elements of the Bektashis' divine intoxication to be still found today in the mystic shrine, albeit here adapted to Western tastes, and alcoholic beverages taking the place of the hashish and opium preferred by the Bektashis. As Master Mason P.D. Newman relates, oh, I just covered one of his articles, and Chris is going to hook me up with him for an interview because they, they're buddies. So this is very exciting. States, in stark contrast to the contemplative formalities of Masonic ritual since its inception, in, and according to its own description, the ancient order of the nobles of the mystic shrine has always been about fellowship and fun. <laughs> Moreover, alcohol has always been a mainstay of shrine activities. Indeed, even in Masonic jurisdictions where Freemasons are not permitted to participate in the wine-stained jovial toasts of the table lodge and festive board, the shrine has always allowed its alcoholic indulgences. P.D. Newman, 2018. Curiously, later accounts of Shriner history seem to somewhat downplay Rawson's role in it. Rawson, also wrote about turning on the 19th century physicist Dr. John Tyndall, Tyndall, 1820-1893, who was said by Rawson to have remarked after a number of experiments with hashish, quote, this is how Jacob saw heaven above his ladder, and how St. John, the revelator, got his glimpse of the celestial and infernal regions. Amazing. Some more beautiful illustrations of the ancient Arabic order and and other such things, journeys into the underworld. The rumors of hashish use by theosophists was certainly cause for scandal. The authors of the Methodist Review, <laughs> I love Methodists, complained, theosophy 
the wisdom religion visits us from afar, from time to time, in the persons of such missionaries as Madame Blavatsky, Colonel Henry Olcott, Mrs. Anne Besant. It also hails from the dreamy Orient and comes to convert the Occident. With the mild delirium of hashish swimming in its eyes, it feebly stretches out its soft and inefficient hands to direct and push on the intense interest of urgent affairs of this practical land. It attempts to bring reverie to bear upon action and achievement. It produces a weak literature, attempts limited philanthropies. If a theosophist has a creed, he keeps it carefully hidden. The truth he claims to possess is, on his representation, so deadly dangerous to all other faiths and is so completely covered from sight as to suggest to the malignant mind of the prowling enemy the possibility of having him arrested and locked up under the statute against carrying concealed weapons. Ridiculous. Mason and Sewell, 1893, from the Methodist, the good old Methodist church. I asked once in seminary what, what's the difference, what a Methodist really, Methodist really was, and someone said, to the laughter of all present, they're Anglicans who like to go outside because <laughs> uh, they formed in public preaching in the fields and stuff. It is likely over such controversy as this, which was widespread, that Blavatsky's later writings seem to reject the use of cannabis and other psychoactive substances for spiritual purposes, as does the modern Theosophical Society. Yeah, it's remarkable how many groups... Uh, have liked to pretend that none of this stuff ever happened or existed in their pasts. Blavatsky was also well acquainted with the 19th century Freemason and inventor George Felt, who gave a lecture in Blavatsky's apartment in 1875 on the lost canon of proportion of the Egyptians, knowledge that came to him by chemical means. Felt hoped, had hoped to introduce into the Masonic fraternity a form of initiation such as prevailed among the ancient Egyptians. Quote, Felt's desire to make Freemasonry better resemble the Egyptian mysteries, one of its supposed ancestors, brings him into the same ambit as Rawson, the propagator of the rites of Memphis and other orientalizing orders. One possibility that leaps to mind is the controlled use of a drug such as hashish with which the French magnetizes often enhanced the perception of somnambulists, which had brought Randolph such un unforgettable experiences, and with which Blavatsky herself had experimented both in Cairo and New York. Godwin, 1994. René Gounod believed that Felt had introduced Blavatsky into the occult order of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. H.B. of L., and that she was later expelled, then went on to form the Theosophical Society, all orchestrated by veiled Eastern masters, the famous Eastern masters, of course, in Gennel's hidden hand view. In reference to the mail order instructions for initiation of the H.B. of L., Hidden Brotherhood of Lux Luxor, Godwin notes, quote, an essential part of the initiation ceremony seems to have been the taking of a pill that was sent along with instructions. Probably this contained a concentrated dose of hashish and or opium to ensure a memorable experience and may perhaps even a communication with the entities of the interior circle. Godwin, 1994. The interior circle was a group of hidden initiates deriving from the concepts of Eckhartshausen, Blavatsky, Gunnar, etc. In their excellent book on this order, The Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, Godwin, Chanel, and Devaney, 1995, the co-authors offer a description from the Mason and so-called alchemist of the Golden Dawn, 
of which he was also a member, Reverend William Alexander Ayton, regarding his initiation into the HBL. Above, we have a picture, a depiction of the ritual taking place in Masonic Lodge, New York, circa 1900. Note the fumigation, Fez, Shriner hats, and alchemical setup. It looks nothing like the Masonic initiations we'd see today. In his initiation into the group, Aiton was required to drink, quote, what purported to be the real Soma juice drunk at a certain stage. I hesitated very much to drink this drug, and I thought of omitting it. However, I opened the bottle and smelt of it. All my life I have been used to drugs, and I at once recognized this. I knew its effects were most powerful, but I decided to take it. Whether it was hallucination produced by this drug, I know not, but I was conscious of another presence. I was fully three hours at it from midnight. When over, I felt my pulse and found just what I expected, that it was intermittent, which which was what I knew to be the effect of the drug I thought it was. <laughs> There's some clear writing for you. Can you imagine if we all spoke like that still today? The authors, who are some of the most knowledgeable historians of this period in occult history, note that hashish certainly played a role in the initiation of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor and of Reverend Eiton. Godwin Chanel Devaney, 1995. There seems to have been an overall interest in the occult use of drugs shared by key members of the group. In the occult magazine one, number one, February 1885, the editor, Peter Davidson, an important figure in the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, quotes Eckhartshausen on the narcotic properties of substances which will exalt the nervous susceptibility as well as assist in clarifying the veil of atmospheric density inducing trance, etc., and increasing the power of representation and consequently of the astral visions. Deveni, 1997. Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor was particularly known for their fascination with magic mirrors, which, like other aspects, likely came through the influence of P.B. Randolph. The Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor drew heavily on the teachings of Pascal Beverly Randolph, 1815-1875, the mulatto mystic and importer of hashish, who sold a variety of cannabis-infused elixirs in the United States, advertising them, as well as writing articles about hashish for the, the popular American spiritualist magazine Banner of Light, and detailing it in his own works, such as the essay Hashish, its uses, abuses, and dangers, its Ecstasia, Fantasia, and Illuminati, 1867. Quote, a leader for a few years, 1857 to 1861, of a Rosicrucian order in San Francisco that he had founded, Randolph traveled alone in Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Turkey, France, and the United Kingdom, dedicating himself in all those places to learning techniques and knowledge from occultists, and to take advantage of the use of hashish, whose discovery he described as true revelation. This prompted him in 1860 to write a definitive treatise on the use of this substance to reach the state of trance, and another equally important around the clairvoyance with the magic mirror. Moreno, 2002. Randolph's life and his use of hashish are detailed in John Devenay's excellent biography, Pascal Beverly Randolph, a 19th century black American spiritualist, Rosicrucian, and sex magician. Devenay, 1997. Like Rawson, Randolph had been initiated into esoteric teachings while traveling in the Mideast, and in this case the Ismaili offshoot, the Nusairi, thought to be the sect described drinking a cannabis infusion under the name Homa. 
in the forementioned 19th century article, Orgies of the Hemp Eaters. In his travels in Europe, and particularly France, Randolph was befriended by a number of mesmerists, occultists, masons, and Rosicrucians, who were working with cannabis for use with magic mirror, astral traveling, and other techniques, such as Louis-Alphonse Cahanet, Baron de Poté, Kenneth R. H. Mackenzie, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, Elephas Levy, and other important figures of the 19th century occult revival. The French mesmerist, spiritualist, and occultist Louis-Alphonse Cahagné, 1809-1885, was particularly influential on Randolph, and it is likely here he gained his biggest influence in regards to the mystical use of hashish. In the Sanctuary of Spiritualism, a study of the human soul and of its revelations with the universe through somnambulism and ecstasy, 1851, Cahagné recorded the experiences of over a dozen participants who had ingested coffee infused with three grams of hashish and concluded, quote, These phenomena demonstrated to me that these hallucinations, so called by all those who have taken this beverage and on whom similar effects have been produced, were intended to establish sacred truths, especially by directing towards them the serious observation of all studious men. Cahagné, 1851. Quote, there is not one of these ecstatic who, after emerging from this state, has not felt a desire to thank God for such an initiation, and each has found himself penetrated with these truths. Does not a medicine exist which I dare only whisper to you, which is that of the word, the living word, which says, let that be, and that is, the medicine of the Christs, of the saints, of all the thaumaturgists, generally, of our cures, by the touch in country places, of our sayers of Nouvain, of faith, of the will, a medicine, the virtue of which may even be included in the mere name of a plant. Mesmerism, a name taken from that of its discoverer, the German doctor Franz Mesmer, 1734-1815, is the popular germ term for a force he called animal magnetism, an invisible natural force possessed by all living animate beings, humans, animals, vegetables, etc. Mesmerists believe that this force has physical effects, including healing. Ernest Bersot's Mesmer et le Magnetisme Animal, 1854, gives some indications of the interest in the use of such substances by the mesmerists of the 19th century. Quote, Extraordinary states of the soul, exaltation of the intellectual faculties, imagination, memory, etc. Some drinks excite the mind. We know what effect the opium mixed with leaves of a kind of hemp produces on the Orientals. Kumpfer, who took a bowl of these preparations in Persia, believed himself for several moments transported to the clouds in the midst of the rainbow, and did not emerge from his ecstatic delirium until after a few hours' sleep. The old man of the mountain, by similar drinks mounted the imagination of the young men and promised them for eternity the enjoyments of these moments if they executed his orders. Fasting also excites the imagination. The ancient sibyls were exalted by the vapors of the cave where they made predictions. Berceau, 1854. Berceau goes on to list the various witch drugs used to travel to the Sabbath in reference to this as well. Quote, These plants are mainly mandrake, belladonna, spiny apple, datura stramontum, darnel, tares, poppies, and opium, all herbs of smell and stunning properties, or are stupefying and narcotic. As we saw in chapter 15, mesmerists 
were not only ingesting such substances, but infusing magic mirrors with them as well, believing that this gave the devices the magnetic energies of the various plants used. Randolph also practiced this technique and wrote about it. However, it was with the 19th century French Rosicrucians that the use of hashish particularly flourished. Contemporary accounts attest to the widespread use of the resin of the Orient. Quote, I have been assured that there are many priests in France who are also Rosicrucians, and still more who are Templars. These men were expert alchemists and able magicians. By the fumes of drugs burnt as incense, they could wrap the spirit in delight and throw the body into a state of coma in which mesmeric clairvoyance might easily be induced, and the party believe himself to converse with the invisible world by hashish, they could wrap them in ravishing enjoyment almost beyond human power to support, unfitting them for the duties of life forever afterwards. All these experiments are performed every Sunday in Paris by parties who avow that they derive their sciences and their religion from the ancient mysteries. The Quarterly Journal of Prophecy, 1852. As Devenny explains, Randolph, as the French mesmerist before him, found that hashish constituted the perfect food for the soul. If he had been searching for years to find the wine of life, the elixir that would perfectly restore the depleted vital fluids that served to connect the soul to the body, he had found it in hashish, the real secret of the wisdom tradition. Randolph's enthusiasm could not be made more clear than by his own words. The serenest and most beatific vision that I ever experienced resulted from taking 18 grains of Dawamesk, an Egyptian preparation. I first took it in France and subsequently obtained the secret of its composition as it is made in Cairo. It may astonish those who knew me some years ago as a blank atheist and believer in the accursed individual sovereignty sophistry when I tell them that when in the deepest gloom of soul after trying to believe in Jehovah with only partial success, I was at last perfectly convinced through the agency of this wonderful conserve. I took a portion of Dawan Mesk. It perfectly illuminated me, but the lucidity infinitely exceeded anything that I had ever known before either spiritual, self-induced, or mesmeric. In this illumination there was no loss of will or self. When fully clear, I asked the question, Is there a God? The answer came, or I went to it. But the mysteries revealed to my astonished soul on that eventful night will never be disclosed to mortal ears. One thing only shall be said, namely, Never, no, not for an instant, have I since doubted the existence of God. Randolph, 1860. As Randolph noted of the Rosicrucians, I am induced to say thus much in order to disabuse the public mind relative to Rosicrucianism, which was not originated by Christian Rosenkrux, but merely revolved and replanted in Europe by him subsequent to his return from Oriental lands, whither, like myself and hundreds of others, he went for initiation. Randolph, 1874. As A.E. Waite wrote in The Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, I am not in a position to affirm that Pascal Beverly Randolph produced the first putative order of the Rosy Cross in America, but I have failed to since trace anything anterior to this date, and he will answer as the first witness in a line of occulted 
adventurers who are typically characteristic of their place and circumstance. Wait, 1924. Randolph's Ravalette, the Rosicrucian story of 1861, is generally seen as a somewhat sensationalized account of his time in the French Rosicrucian scene, his various initiations, and it has numerous references to his search for the elixir of life, that very elixir for which the philosophers have toiled. Ravalet also describes Randolph's trip to the Mideast, quote, to obtain the material in Jerusalem for the composition of the elixir of life, not that I intended to make it, but because I wanted to use them in my medical practice, Randolph, 1861. It was here that Randolph was allegedly initiated into the Nusari tribe of Syria, who we discussed in Chapter 3 for their sacramental use of cannabis as Homa in the 19th century as well as their grail-like ritual of the cup. <laughs> awesome. The knowledge that Randolph gained from these people led to his The Anseratic Mystery, 1873. The name Anseri identifies the same people as the name Nusairi, the latter spellings representing the Elysian of the original Arabic name with the initial N. Elysian is a linguistic function. I haven't seen that word in a while. Elite. As we saw in chapter 12, Randolph clearly viewed the elixir of life as some sort of preparation of cannabis, and we can be sure his mission to Jerusalem was a success, as by the time of Ravelais' publication, he was already advertising a variety of products from the very best oriental hemp. He was preparing and selling with his Native American wife, Mary Jane, an Indian woman descended from a long line of Native medicine men and is thoroughly educated in her profession. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> At one point before the Civil War, he was probably the largest importer of hashish into the United States. Whoa. You go, Randolph and the Rosicrucians. In reply to the numerous correspondence, let me say that nearly all the hashish I brought from with me from Europe, and none other is fit to use, is exhausted. The balance I will sell at four dollars a bottle, with full directions on how to secure the celestial and avoid the ill fantasies. I have only twenty-five cases left out of three hundred and fifty, so that those who want the genuine oriental article must send at once to... Dr. P.B. Randolph, 17 Bromfield Street, Boston, Massachusetts. And that was from the Banner of Light advertisement, October 1860. Randolph patented a variety of cannabis-based aphrodisiacs and medicines, giving them alchemical-sounding names such as Femile and Amile. And the differences he attributes to its effects leaves one wondering if he had stumbled upon the opposing effects of CBD and THC. Huh. Excellent observation by Mr. Bennett here. Quote, he touted the first as especially suited for nervous exhaustion and the second as a panacea for passional excess, onanism, etc. Together they were the best aphrodisian in the world. The story of Ravaletta and the search for sacred elixirs is particularly interesting in relation to other Rosicrucian adventure stories such as Edward Bulwer-Lytton Zanoni, A Rosicrucian Tale. Baron Edward George Earl Bulwer-Lytton, 1803 to 1875, that's quite the name, was an English novelist, poet, playwright, politician, and Rosicrucian. His novels were immensely popular and he coined the phrases, the great unwashed, 
Also, pursuit of the almighty dollar. The pen is mightier than the sword, dweller on the threshold, and the well-known opening line, it was a dark and stormy night. Yeah, he, he coined all those terms. Amazing. Of course, I've read Zanoni, as we all must usually at some point for me in the portal grade. Bulwer-Lytton led the English Rosicrucians, a branch of the Scottish Rite Masons headed by Prime Minister Palmerston. Unlike the comparatively closed mouths, members of the British elite around him, Bulwer-Lytton was an outspoken exponent of the ISIS cult. Alexander Koch has suggested that the British version of the ISIS ritual that Lytton was involved in was known for its dependency for spiritual renewal on hashish. Koch, 2008. That's K-O-K for the reference. Unfortunately, Koch failed to reveal the source of his claim. Unfortunate. In Zanoni, a Rosicrucian tale, Bulwer-Lytton wrote, To quaff the inner life, tis to see the outer life. To live in defiance of time is to live in the whole. He who discovers the elixir discovers what lies in space. For the spirit that vivifies the frame strengthens the senses. There is attraction in the elementary principle of light. In the lamps of Rosicrucius, the fire is the pure elemental principle. Kindle the lamps while thou openest the vessel that contains the elixir, and the light attracts towards thee those beings whose life is that light. Bulwer Lytton, 1842. Many real-life figures were referred to in Zanoni, such as the opium seer, Kazotta, who appears in person and as a companion of Zanoni, uttering his prophecies in a circle of national enlightened philosophers while in a clairvoyant trance, which Zanoni in induced. Van Schloon, 2007. Like Cagliostro, Zanoni is known for his various medical cures. The astonishing feats of healing produced by Zanoni are perfectly explicable given sufficient knowledge of the herbal medicine he practices. In explicitly rejecting supernaturalism and superstition, Bulwer-Lytton argues for Rosicrucian esotericism as a sacred science rather than diabolism. Machen, 2003. Well, that's why I've always liked, liked him, isn't it? We all know that. I, I had no idea of what I just read, but that's pretty, pretty hilarious. Maybe I'm, I was him. Maybe we're all each other all the time. In Bulwer-Lytton, The Rise and Fall of the Victorian Man of Letters, Lytton is described as often dressed in foreign attire and accepting visitors while smoking a pipe six or seven feet in length or taking opium through a hookah. Interviews were offered in a room decorated in the style of Pompeii and lighted by a perfumed pastille modeled from Mount Vesuvius. Small children found the whole effect terrifying. Sir Leslie Ward found him almost satanic-looking. Thomas Carlyle exclaimed, I shall never forget Bulwer in this world. A mad world, my masters. Mitchell, 2003. Wilkie Collins reported that Bulwer-Lytton had told him that he used opium as a stimulus and tranquilizer, and in an article he wrote on Lytton's A Strange Story, he said Lytton's inspiration for the tale obviously came from laudanum, which was the resource that sustained his work, as he had confessed to Collins. Bulwer-Lytton regularly smoked opium, suggested that opium enhanced his intellectual well-being. A pipe is the fountain of contemplation, the source of pleasure, the companion of the wise, and the man who smokes thinks like a philosopher and acts like a Samaritan.
Barter, 2004. Bulwer-Lytton also seems to have held some interest in opium trade, as a letter reprinted in the Parliamentary Papers, House of Commons, Command, Volume 48, 1860, refers to being, quote, directed by Secretary Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton for the consideration of the Lord's Commissioners of the Treasury included a copy of a dispatch from the governor of Hong Kong regarding the licensing and regulating of the sale of prepared opium. Another writer of this genre was William Ainsworth's Aureole, or The Elixir of Life, which combined the Rosicrucian theme with elements from the tragic story of Faust. Aureole contains the following hallucinatory description of a dwarf drinking what he thinks is his recently deceased master's potion of the elixir of life. I next looked round to see whether the precious elixir was gone. On the table stood a phial, from which a strong spiritous odor exhaled, but it was empty. I then turned my attention to a receiver, connected by a worm with an alembic on the furnace. On examining it, I found it contained a small quantity of a bright transparent liquid which poured forth into a glass, emitted precisely the same odor as the phial. Persuaded this must be the draft of immortality, I raised it to my lips, but apprehension lest it might be poison stayed my hand. Reassured, however, by the thought of the young man's miraculous recovery, I quaffed the potion. It was as if I had swallowed fire. At first, I thought it all was over with me. I shrieked out, but there was no one to heed my cries unless it were my dead master and two or three skeletons with which the walls were garnished. And these, in truth, did seem to hear me. For the dead corpse opened its glassy orbs and eyed me reproachfully. The skeletons shook their fleshless arms and gibbered. And the various strange objects with which the chamber was filled seemed to deride and menace me. The terror occasioned by these fantasies combined with the potency of the draught took my sway my senses. When I recovered, I found all tranquil. Dr. Lamb was lying stark and stiff at my feet with an expression of reproach on his fixed countenance, and the skeletons were hanging quietly in their place. Ainsworth, 1844, and a beautiful portrayal, I believe, of this image from Oriel of a treacherous rogue partaking of a dying alchemist's preparation of the elixir of life. It's really interesting because that's the sort of the same premise as in The Red Lion by Maria Giuseppe's. She might have stolen the idea from Ainsworth, perhaps, or at least the premise. We can be sure that Ainsworth was well familiar with the effects of various drugs and their role in the occult. He did, in fact, write about the assassins and other Islamic groups' use of hashish in the journal that edit he edited, the new monthly magazine, which also featured the work of Bulwer-Lytton. An 1852 edition of the monthly had an article, The Ansari, or Assassins. The term assassin is now generally admitted to be derived from these people and from the intoxicating drugs hemp and opium, hashish, which they used to excite themselves to deeds of desperation. Under that name, and under the name of Kuras or Shuras of, in Persia and Gunja in India, this drug is still extensively used in the East. The massive argument is rather in favor of the Ismaili being the so-called assassins of the Crusaders than the Anseri. Both, no doubt, have used or do use the drug hashish. 1852. 
That's what was in the magazine. In a personal narrative of the Euphrates expedition, Ainsworth reveals his deep knowledge and interest in such groups in a description that I would argue should see him added to the list of potential authors proposed by Hakim Bey for the orgies of the hemp eaters. <laughs> the orgies. With Rawson and Randolph. 1895, quote, the use of this herb is very common in the East. The Indian, Persian, and Arabic physicians and authors treat of it in their works. Makrisi particularly describes, in glowing terms, certain pleasure resorts near Cairo, which were famous above all for the sale of hashish. It is said in a work by Hassan to have been first used in 658 of the Hegira by a sheikh, a sheikh of the order of Haydar. An Arab poet sings of this hater's emerald cup, an evident allusion to the rich green color of the tincture of the herb. The sheikh, it is said, only survived the discovery ten years, subsisting chiefly on the drug. And on his death, his disciples, by his desire, planted it round an arbor over his tomb, a fit emblem of his death. Volney and Burkhardt interested themselves in seeking out how much there was that was pagan in these Christian Mohammedan doctrines. The solar apotheosis of their chief prophet is declared to have been a pagan dream, but how far the doctrine of metempsychosis is grafted on the worship of Baal. Baal, or what affinity exists between Baal Fezer and the juggernaut of India, appear really to be questions but remotely connected with the Ansarians. Supposing they did admit the transmigration of souls as one of their many strange beliefs. The Ansarians have also been calumniated in common with the Ismailis and the Yazidis, Kurd worshippers of Ized. Ized, the evil spirit, as performing rites of an infamous description, infamous description, dissimilar to what were laid at the charge of the ancient Gnostics. Ainsworth, 1888. The above description fits with the ideas and belief brought back by Randolph after his own sojourn with his mysterious Mid-Eastern sect. It seems that the research and travels of some occultists may have led them back to the very source and origins of the Western magical tradition. Amazing. The homeland of the magic of the Picatrix, the elixirs of alchemy, and alleged source of Templar initiations. The anti-Masonic writer Charles Nicolot, in his L'Initiation Masonique, used the difference between the philosophical high of hashish as opposed to the dulling effects of alcohol to describe the differences between Rosicrucians and Freemasons. The Rose Cross is to the ordinary master what a man who has an intoxication of hashish must be to the vulgar drinker who has recreated himself only with the red blood of the vine. Niculo, 1913. Occult writer Francis King, we know him, refers to the work of an early member of the Sauce Rock. Rosicrucian Society in England, SRIA. Kenneth R.H. Mackenzie, 1833 to 1836, a young Mason and occultist who claimed that he had been initiated into a continental Rosicrucian fraternity by an Austrian named Count Aponie. It is interesting to note that someone of this name was attached to the Austrian embassy in Paris at a time when it is known that Mackenzie was also there. Mackenzie was a pupil of Fred Hockley, a great collector of ancient magical texts, who had himself been the pupil of a member of Francis Barrett's magical school, King, 1989. Mackenzie also spent time with the Lefis Levy and was an 
avid devotee of magical mirrors. Most notably, he was the author of the Royal Masonic Cyclopedia of History, Rites, Symbolism, 1877. That's, of course, a huge work in, in masonry. Giving us a clear indication of how substances like hashish and opium might have been viewed by Rosicrucians and Masons of the time, quote, Mackenzie wrote an important article for the Rosicrucian, the short-lived magazine of the Sauce Ross, and in this he gave his exposition of his personal attitude towards the magical arts. King, 1989. And here's the quote. <clears throat> Magic is not necromantea, a raising of dead material substances endowed with an imagined life, but a psychological branch of science dealing with the sympathetic effects of stones, drugs, herbs, and living substances upon the imaginative and reflective faculties, and leading to ever new glimpses of the world of wonders around us, ranking it in due order of phenomena and illustrating the beneficence of the great architect of the universe. Magic, therefore, is a legitimately Masonic field of study, and in these days where practical chemistry produces alcohol from flint stones, surely we may not be very astonished at the possibility of obtaining spiritual truth from the interrelations of material substances. In such wise acted the elder alchemists, to whom the proud modern chemist wrapped in an ineffable disdain of their labors, but whence he sprung, will give no praise and no ear. Kenneth R. H. Mackenzie, 19th century Freemason Rosicrucian. The famous magical group, the Golden Dawn, was formed in 1888 by several members of the group Mackenzie belonged to, Societis Rosicruciana in Anglia, Rosicrucian Society of England, and the structure and grades of this order were derived from an 18th century German order of the Golden and Rosy Cross. There was clearly interest in the magical use of drugs with many members of the order, such as W.B. Yeats, Alistair Crowley, Dr. Edward W. Barrage, Alexander Eiton, whose cannabis-infused initiation with the Soma of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor was discussed earlier, as well as others. The general view has been that Samuel Little McGregor Mathers, the head of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, clearly rejected the use of drugs in magic and frowned upon all such methods. Regardi. Israel Regardi, 1968. And of course, this is what I was taught as well, going through the, the Golden Dawn 24 years ago. Thus, drugs are not a part of the Golden Dawn, and the adepts who used it did so outside of the order. Yep. Yeah, we didn't even allow um, pot smoking before initiations or ceremonies or any kind of... You couldn't show up under the influence at all. It was not okay. However, one of the Golden Dawn's original co-founders, a Freemason and a chief of the Societis Rosicruciana in Anglia, Dr. William Wynne Westcott, 1848-1925, who is also perhaps arguably more significant than Mathers in many ways, wrote about drugs in at least two unpublished tracts. These tracts originally meant as inner teachings and given privately to students of the occult arts have since be been reprinted in The Magical Mason, Forgotten Hermetic Writings of William Wynne Westcott, Physician and Magus, Robert Gilbert, 1983. So check out Bob Gilbert's book, which all his books are amazing. A tract on dreams recorded the following on opium and hashish. And here we have also the famous picture of William Wynne Westcott with his lotus wand and uh, other regalia, a mixture of early golden dawn symbolism and Masonic stuff, it seems. Maybe it's straight up masonry, but just a level I'm not a... I'm not a big-time mason, of course. Dr. William Wynne Westcott depicted in the ceremonial garment of the Rosicrucians. It's probably a sauce Ross thing, but I believe that's the lotus wand in a certain version. Opium, 
he says, gives rise to deep, sound sleep in persons unused to its action. But large doses in persons who have outgrown its soporific effect exhibit the power of causing dreaming in a very exaggerated form. Opium eaters dream and remember dreams characterized by gorgeous imagery, exalted impressions, and boundless grandeur. Students should read the dreams of Thomas de Quincey, the famous author who was an opium eater. Alcoholism, on the other hand, creates dreams of terror, hatred, malice, and suspicion, hauntings by animal forms, by serpents, or by insects, and an indescribable terror arising from colors and from horrors of attack by persons who have never been associated with any suspicion of enmity or hostility to the sufferer. The hashish of the Turks and Arabs, prepared from the cannabis indica plant, is credited with the power to give rise to dreams of intense pleasure, often of a sexual character. Samples of this drug vary very much in quality. Some are powerful sedatives, others almost inert. It is a dangerous drug to experiment with. The old medieval magicians taught that dreams of different characteristics would be produced by sleeping. In the presence of certain perfumes, from incense made from particular herbs, burned on plates of different metals. Westcott, 1906. Another tract, titled Divination and Its History, which included various definitions of magical techniques such as crystallomancy, necromancy, etc., Westcott included the following description. Pharmacaea. Enchantment by drugs is reckoned among divinations. Medicated compounds were administered internally, either openly or by stealth, to create love and passion, or to cause enmity, or to produce dreams on certain subjects. Leaves of the herb called molly and of the laurel, also jasper stones, were worn as amulets to ward off the effects of other charms used maliciously. The cannabis plant or Indian hemp was given to produce mystic visions. Enchanted girdles were also supplied by magicians to bestow foresight to the wearer and to keep dangers away from him. Westcott, 1910. Pharmakia is the Greek word that is translated in most modern New Testament accounts as sorcery and makes use, specific use, reference to the use of drugs in magic. Our modern term pharmacy comes from this same Greek root. In this tract, the warnings about the use of cannabis for visionary purposes are not included. As well, there is the reference to enchanted girdles made from the plant, which is interesting in regard to the hemp cords that have been suggested as worn by witches, templars, dervishes, and going back to Zoroastrian and Vedic references. These passages do open up the possibility that the use of cannabis was a part of the inner teachings of the Golden Dawn. As Harrison notes, Westcott was particularly instrumental in the formation of the Golden Dawn. Quote, the founding of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn can be traced back to 1887 when Dr. William Wynne Westcott, a Freemason who was constantly delving deeper for hidden knowledge, obtained a mysterious manuscript in cipher from fellow Freemason, the Reverend A.F.A. Woodford. The cipher, on translation, turned out to be a series of rituals, and Westcott asked fellow Freemason and Rosicrucian Samuel Little McGregor Mathers to work on and expand them, amongst the papers of the cipher manuscript that Westcott had received from Woodford. He had found the name of a certain Fräulein Anna Sprangle, a Rosicrucian adept from Germany, and after writing to her, Westcott was given permission to form an English version of the Golden Dawn. Harrison, 2017. And of course, I addressed the issue of uh, Fräulein Anna Sprangle and how he, it was really a man they were talking to, but it was a valid person when I covered Macintosh's 
essay on the Golden Dawn and Fraulein Anna Sprangle early in my podcast. Thanks to Macintosh for doing good scholarship on the original source letters written in German found in the Freemasonic Library in Germany, I believe. Golden Dawn member and noted Irish poet W.B. Yeats, 1865 to 1939, recorded, I took the Indian hemp with certain followers of Saint Martin on the ground floor of a house in the Latin Quarter. I had never taken it before, and was instructed by a boisterous young poet, whose English was no better than my French. He gave me a little pellet, if I am not forgetting, an hour before dinner, and another after we had dined together at some restaurant. As we were going through the streets to the meeting place of the Martinists, I suddenly felt that a cloud I was looking at floated in an immense space, and for an instant my being rushed out, as it seemed, into that space with ecstasy. Yeats, 1906. Yeats is known to have experimented with other drugs. He used hashish in experiments with clairvoyance and for divinations. Yeats's book The Secret Rose, 1897, reveals its esoteric and Rosicrucian influences in the title. The Secret Rose reflects another arcane This is from the definitive biography of W.B. Yeats by uh, Foster. The Secret Rose reflects another arcane subculture, too. It was no accident that the language was, by turns, narcotic and hallucinogenic. W.B.Y. had learnt to take hashish with the shady followers of the mystic Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin in Paris. In April 1897, he experimented with mescal, supplied by Havelock Ellis, who recorded that while an excellent subject for visions, and very familiar with the various vision-producing drugs and processes, W.B. Yeats found the effect on his breathing unpleasant. He much prefers hashish, which he continued to take in tablets, a particularly potent form of ingestion. Foster, 1998. Modern occult writer Francis King has speculated that Aleister Crowley may have been initiated into the magical use of drugs by chemist and student of pharmacology C.G. Jones, who also introduced the young Crowley into the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Crowley would later find himself in a court battle with the Order after publishing some of their secret writings. Occultist Kenneth Grant, who studied magic under Crowley in 1945, believed it was Golden Dawn member Alan Bennett who introduced Crowley to the use of drugs between 1898 and 1899. This adept of the Golden Dawn had already experienced some of the high spiritual trances by the time Crowley met him. Grant, 1972. Bennett, who suffered with severe asthma in search of relief, experimented with all sorts of drugs and was a bit of an expert on the subject of their use and effects. Bennett fired Crowley's imagination with hints of magical tradition which featured a certain rare drug to open the gates of the world behind the veil of matter. In the flat at Chancery Lane, where Crowley lived under a variety of aliases, and where he entertained voluptuous women, Bennett and he sampled many of the well-known drugs and several strange ones as well. Grant. 1972. Writing in his diary in 1901, Crowley recorded, I think physical astral projection should be preceded by ceremonial, loosening of the girders of the soul. How to do it is a great problem. I am inclined to believe in drugs if only one knew the right drug. I guess they didn't have DMT back then. Crowley clearly found these in mescaline and particularly hashish, as decades later, 
In his exquisite Kabbalistic treatise, Little Essays Towards Truth, he wrote, Such drugs as cannabis indica and anhalonium lavini, mescaline, do actually loosen the girders of the soul. Crowley, 1939. As Crowley's many references to hashish, both esoteric and exoteric, such as this essay, The Psychology of Hashish, 1909, and De Herbo Sanctissimo Arabico, 1918, will be fully explored in a later volume. I shall leave it at this for now. Suffice to say, there is much to be said. Yes, Chris's new book will be on Crowley and drugs and hashish and the OTO. Very exciting. The Golden Dawn member, Dr. Edward W. Barrage's esoteric experiments with cannabis and sex were directly inspired by those of P.B. Randolph. And where I was just living in Santa Rosa was right around where Barrage's influence was felt by those he was writing to there to create these uh, practices in popularity. Um, these techniques also went on to influence Crowley and the magical sexual practices of the OTO. In regard to Barrage, it is interesting to note Moreno's observation and the con- of the contribution of- to cannabis science by Barrage and other medical figures associated with Masonic lodges and the occult. Quote, the alchemist and medical doctor Edward W. Barrage, trained in canonical tradition in England and homeopathic in the USA, and recognized even today for his formulations of various psychic syndromes, such as the fear of coal scuttle, mainly based on their own experiments with mother tincture of hashish. European and American homeopaths had contributed greatly to the progress in describing the symptomatology and therapeutic applications of the virtues of cannabis sativa since the very establishment of this medical discipline. Given the interest shown to the plant by its founder, Samuel Hananen, and dozens of initiators such as Clemens Maria Franz von Böninghausen, Adolphus Graf von Lippe, Robert E. Dungeon, James Tyler Kent, William Burke, Henry Clay Allen, A.C. Cowperthwaite, J.W. Hutchison, Timothy Field Allen, etc., some of them were also called occultists, and almost all were linked to a greater or lesser degree to various Masonic lodges. Moreno, 2002. There seems to have been at least some awareness of this occult history of cannabis among some Rosicrucian groups. Yeah, that's fair to say, I'd say. Into the mid-20th century and after the time of cannabis prohibition. A 1945 edition of the Rosicrucian Digest, volume 23, published by the then Supreme Council of the Rosicrucian Order, in regard to the question, what herbs have mystical powers or virtues? Answered, throughout history, the mystics and ancients used for incense, various highly aromatic herbs, incense, and gums to quiet the mind and place it in a receptive and psychic mood for spiritual meditation. The ancient Egyptians and Persians used a combination of lovan, hemp, and belladonna for magical purposes. All races have had certain herbs which they believed had supernatural powers to prolong life, a description that fits with claims of the various Rosicrucian elixirs we described earlier. Paul Foster Case, 1884 to 1954, the occultist and Freemason who belonged to various occult orders and founded the builders of the Aditum, seems to indicate that drugs, likely referring to hashish, could be identified in the early Rosicrucian accounts. In a private letter to Israel Regardi, Yoga breathing has a tendency to raise the carbon monoxide content of the blood, Case wrote, just as does the inhalation of tobacco smoke. Patanjali is careful to tell us that the cities may be brought into manifestation by chemical means, by which he intends to indicate the use of certain drugs. 
To be sure, the reaction from these drugs makes the unsatisfactory for the purpose of genuine unfoldment, it being, so to say, too high a price to pay for the cities. Cities are, of course, the Hindu word for uh, powers you get from practices. They're a big part of transcendental meditation as well that I was raised in. So, But it seems to me very clear that all practices leading to the evolution of our latent powers must include the chemical changes I have referred to. Hence, Brother C.R., Christian Rosenkreutz, meets the wise men in the temple of the blood of the Lamb, or in plain language, one establishes rapport with the chiefs of the invisible order because of subtle psychological changes in one's own body, and particularly in the chemical states of the bloodstream. Yoga practices bring about some of these changes. So does ceremonial magic. So do some kinds of ascetic practice. So do drugs. The Kabbalistic interpretation of Christian Rosenkreutz and of Damkar is but the recognition of a formula which sums up the experience. Damkar, of course, is from the uh, founding Rosicrucian mythological documents and uh, Blood of the Lamb. The more so because the temple is in Arabia, hence the fama, fama fraternitatis, of course, says that Christian Rosenkreutz bargained with the Arabians stops at Damascus, hears of wise men, then he goes down to Egypt to study plants and animals. The whole thing adapts itself perfectly to the actual experience one goes through. Case, 1933. In regards to Patanjali, Case refers to Yoga Sutras 4.1, quote, the subtler attainments come with birth or are attained through herbs, mantra, austerities, or concentration. Case also seems to indicate here that one avenue of contact to the chiefs of the invisible order was through the use of drugs and identifies Christian Rosenkreutz's own study of plants before going on to found the Rosicrucian order. However, Case also warns of the danger of such methods and goes on to describe his rejection of Enochian magic out of concerns about it being indubitably potent, and then places the occult use of drugs in the same category. Quote, so too are mescal buttons, that's peyote, and hashish and opium, it is not necessary to burn down the house to roast a pig. <laughs> there is far more to magic than getting results. <laughs> wow. Case 1933. I don't know about that. Results are pretty cool, <laughs> says Chris Bennett. I love that. Oh, his great scholar and great sense of humor, but you all know that already. As for Israel Regardi, Who's And let's not forget that there's this Crowley conference that was going to be held up at, at Chris Bennett's uh, retreat, but is now on Zoom with Lon Milo Duquette and a bunch of other great people in the regards to Thelema and Crowley and a friend of mine, Jeremiah, is doing something. Um, now I'll be helping out with the tech stuff. Um, that's coming up, so go to Lieber420.com to sign up for this really cool Zoom conference that will be happening. As for Israel Rigardi, who Case was writing to, and who would play an important role in the continued interest in both ma the magic of the Golden Dawn and the legacy of Aleister Crowley, he went on to publish a collection of writings on hashish and other drugs, from the works of Crowley and other authors under the title Roll Away the Stone, an introduction to Aleister Crowley's essays on the psychology of hashish. As he wrote in the foreword, some of the more ancient schools of initiation must have employed drugs of one kind or another in a sacramental manner. Regardi, 1968. 
References to the use of cannabis for releasing the astral double can also be found in the writings of the Czechoslovakian occult author Karl Weinfurter, 1867-1942. He was a founding member of the Theosophic Lodge of the Blue Star a group which was dedicated to Masonic Rosicrucian and other occult influences and included Gustav Meyrink, who was discussed for his alchemical references to drugs in Chapter 12 in Man's Highest Purpose, The Lost Word Regained, 1935. Weinfurter, like Case, referred to Patanjali's ancient reference in the Yoga Sutra, 400 BC, thereabouts, to cities, i.e. yogic powers, attained in different ways. They are gained by birth, plants, incantations, asceticism, or samadhi. Quote, by plants are understood opiates, hashish, and other narcotics, by means of which the astral body is freed and thereby the contact with the transcendental world is obtained. The Orientals know a great many of those vegetable means for the arousing of the higher senses and for the attainment of magical powers. The Indian vegetable mixture used for gaining these powers is secretly kept and usually known but by the guru, leader, how to be applied. Weinfurter, 1932. It is clear, however, that not all Rosicrucians were accepting of this message. Certainly, H. Spencer Lewis rejected such, and he commented that when he reintroduced the order in the early part of the 20th century, he altered the Rosicrucian methods more than ever had been done before, in order to make it more acceptable to the modern initiate. The Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics comments that the Rosicrucians had been, up until the war, very active in good works, especially in carrying investigations into the uses of vegetable drugs and the relief of disease by means of colored lights and hypnotic processes. Hastings et al., 1919. That's very fascinating mainstream recognition of the uh, plant medicines and other uh, therapies and therapeutic processes that the Rosicrucians were recognized for doing. That's amazing that it's in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. A statement which likely seems reference to the use of narcotics with infused magic mirrors and discs created on the basis of planetary correspondences by certain Rosicrucians referred to in Chapter 15. So basically this stuff that Marsilio Ficino was doing in the first hospital that he created under the de' Medici's um, and the Pope, Alexander, uh, just kept going through these traditions and uh, was alive and well up until the 20th century. The Christian occultist and Rosicrucian Max Heindel, author of The Rosicrucian Cosmo Conception, 1909, <laughs> that's one of the first books I ever got as a child, <clears throat> warned that certain negative phases of clairvoyance are also developed by taking drugs, by crystal gazing, etc. In all such cases, the faculty is a danger and a detriment, being uncontrolled by the spirit. Drugs have a fearfully destructive effect on the different vehicles of man. Heindel. 1955. However, as Heindel immediately goes on to warn about breathing exercises, Steiner also warned about breathing exercises, I think we can take this warning with a grain of salt and inhale safely. Quote, the most dangerous method of development is indiscriminate breathing exercises. Many a man is in the insane asylum today or his body lies in a consumptive's grave on account of having practiced breathing exercises in development glasses taught by persons as ignorant as himself. Max Heindel, 1955. I suppose rhythmic breathing was the original gateway drug. But no, Steiner, uh, Steiner indeed was uh, said it was very dangerous to take breathing off automatic function and put it into intentional uh, conscious function. He was very against it. As we enter into the late 19th and early 20th century, oh, and the way I found that out was because I was having some problems 
after several years in the Golden Dawn uh, and doing the different breath work and having done it as a child in, in the Transcendental Meditation Maharishi stuff. And it was some of my Waldorf High School teachers, anthroposophists, who let me know Steiner's opinion on that stuff. <clears throat> as we enter into the late 19th and early 20th century period of occult history, I could go on at length about groups who ignored such warnings about the use of hashish and other drugs and utilized them in initiation and practice, such as the Grupo di Ur, Fraternitas Saturni, the Ordo Templi Orientis, and others. And so that would be the Ur group, was uh, Evola's group, Fraternitas Saturni, oh, who's that? I forget. And the OTO and others, along with a variety of well-known independent occultists from this time period. A whole book could be written about Aleister Crowley's magical references to hashish and other drugs alone. However, as this period of history will be the topic of my next book, I will refrain from that here for space's sake, and save that discussion for then. However, before closing this chapter, I do want to note the intriguing influence of the Masonic and Rosicrucian traditions in the development of a modern, influential, and increasingly popular religion of Rastafarianism, which is well known for its sacred use of ganja. This Caribbean tradition has long been noted for its syncretic elements of Christianity and traditions involving ganja in India that include matted hair or dreadlocks, smoking through chillums, and other instruments. In his excellent volume on the origins of the Rastafarian tradition, Dread Jesus, Williams David Spencer, brings into play other contributions to Rastafari that have been otherwise unrecognized. As Spencer has noted, two early founders of Rastafari, H. Archibald Dunkley and Joseph Nathaniel Hibbert, were members of the secret Egyptian Masonic order, the Ancient Brotherhood of Silence, or Ancient Mystic Order of Ethiopia. The Masons had consciously adopted the name Jah from Psalm 68, 4. The Hebrew divine name Yah, of course. Spencer, 2011. Spencer also identifies Rosicrucian elements adopted and influencing Rastafarianism, and other Rastafarian historians, such as Dennis Forsyth in Rastafari, The Healing of the Nations, refer to secret knowledge that has been guarded and kept alive over the years by such people as the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, and the Alchemists, etc. Forsyth, 1983. Clearly one of those secrets is this hidden history of cannabis, a plant which, like the Masonic story of acacia growing on the grave of Hiram Abif, according to Rastafarian traditions, grew on the grave of wise Sol King Solomon. Yeah. With the onset of drug prohibition, there was clear motivation for already secretive societies to distance themselves from the now illegal use of cannabis and other magical herbs, as even rumors of such use would be cause for concern, leading to investigations and possibly arrest. As the occult writer, former member of the Golden Dawn and member of various magical groups, Dion Fortune, lamented in her classic work on psychic self-defense. It is well known that there are various drugs which can be used to exalt consciousness and induce a temporary psychism. It may not be equally well known that most of these substances come under the regulations of the Dangerous Drugs Act, and that to obtain them from some irregular sources, or even to be found in possession of them save for a legitimate purpose, is to render oneself liable to prosecution, and in this case, too, the authorities are exceedingly alert and magistrates exceedingly drastic.
Fortune, 1930. <laughs> Crowley was but one of a few occultists who attempted to challenge these laws in a number of articles. In this matter of the Dangerous Drugs Act, Parliament seems to have been inspired by his ignorance made deeper by the wildest ravings of that upper class of newspaper which aspires to thrill its readers, if reading it can be called, with blood-curdling horrors. Crowley, 1922. Yeah, the English tabloids to this day are brutal as an understatement. The changes this legal situation wrought in the occult world can be seen in the watered-down versions of such groups that are around in our modern times. Despite older connections, the modern Rosicrucian movement is largely an artificial creation with its origins in academic histories of the occult. Jenkins, 2000. To be clear, I doubt that the vast majority of modern Masonic organizations or popular Rosicrucian groups like AMORC, AMORC, that's Ancient Mystical Order Rosicrucius, have been concealing modern... Concealing secret drug-infused initiations. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Or even deep secrets of the Bible. Even modern Masons acknowledge that much of their rituals and rites has been lost through time, and countless books have been written attempting to reclaim what has been lost and understand their origins. This has also been true of the history of cannabis and other entheogenic substances, and most people have little knowledge of their role in magic, religion, alchemy, and the initiations of certain secret societies. Below is a very awesome postcard, circa 1905, depicting a fez-wearing mystic smoking hashish and having hallucinations. It says, seeing everything. It's very cool. <laughs> Although much of the evidence here has come through identifying its use by members of such groups, there has been enough evidence presented that we can be sure that it was also used in ritual initiations by some groups at some points in history. This technique is as ancient as magic and religion itself, and psychoactive substances were used and still are in shamanic tribal initiations, as well as more refined cultural events like the mysteries of Eleusis. Perhaps today, as anthropologists and psychologists examine the benefits of things like ayahuasca rituals and the potential benefits of psychoactive drugs as opposed to the purely recreational use, the rediscovery of the Western magical tradition's use of such substances for similar purposes will come back into play and help restore the heart and mind of humanity at this troubled point in history. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm glad that Chris and I had a conversation that led me to do this chapter in particular. And uh, go to www.lieber420.com to sign up in your email, and we'll let you know about his Crowley conference with uh, Lon and all these other great people coming in a couple weeks. So go do that. Cheers, thanks. Follow on Spotify and review us well on Apple Podcasts. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. 
That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk